Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to synchromysticism, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visip blog and co-author of Strange Tales of the Parapolitical, along with my co-host, Frank Zero. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visupview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot.com. And procure a copy of the book at the farm's official store, which is the farmpodcast.store. That's the farmpodcast, all one word, dot store. All right, guys, today's show is another installment in our World Anti-Communist League series, and that means that parts of the Wackle crew are with me today. Actually, we've got just about everyone besides Moss Robinson for this one, but Moss will be with us the next time around. But for today, I've got the great John Brisson from We've Read the Documents, who's making his first proper appearance in one of the Wackle shows. Thank you so much for joining us today, John. Anytime, Recluse. I'm glad to be here, brother. Yeah, I think this is going to be a special one, man. It's good that you're going to be a part of it. All right, next up, I've got my research partner, that great Keith Allen Dennis, with me as well. Keith, as always, it is a pleasure. How are things down there at Bigsby, man? Are you uh, seeing the UN massing just yet? Uh, no, no, no. Well, it always does my heart good when you tell me that. Yeah. Otherwise, man, it is wonderful that you are here with me today. All right, finally, we have got the farm's resident ex-cultist. Don Diligent here with us today. For those of you who are unaware, Don is a defector from the infamous Unification Church, and he has decided that he needs to share his views and perspective in the public forum, and they are going to be especially useful for us today. Don, thank you so much for joining us, sir. Hey, thank you, Recluse. It's good to be here again. Absolutely. Okay, so this is a Wackle Show. For those of you who are unaware, the World Anti-Communist League is a fascinating topic, hence the series we're doing on it. During the Cold War, it became the visible personification of the fascist international. It brought together a strange brew of aging fascist and Nazi war criminals, various former intelligence officers from across the world, various third world quote-unquote freedom fighters, or death squads as they're known throughout much of the rest of the world, and the inevitable arms and drug traffickers. Throw in numerous secret societies and cults, and you are left with a truly sinister force, and one strange brew at that. For today's installment of the Wackle series, we're going to be focusing on one of the most notorious cults included in this network. It is the one that Don has escaped from, in fact, the infamous Unification Church of Sun Myung Moon, sometimes known simply as the Moonies after their founder. For obvious reasons, Don is going to take the lead in today's show, but to kick things off for us, I'm going to have Keith set the stage. All right, Keith, so during the last Wackle show, I asked you to go over the China lobby and specifically why it still matters today. And now I want you to do the same thing for the Moonies and the Unification Church. Why do they still matter, brother? Well, um, actually, going back to the pod before that that I did with you, you asked me why moral rearmament still matters today. And that's kind of a, you know, like a forgotten chapter. The China lobby still matters today because it's kind of gave birth to the modern conspiracy industry it really did um so it's a distant you know echo there but as far as the unification church goes i mean i'll tell you what let's let's look at something that happened this week so we can go right to current events um earlier this week in newsweek 
an article got published uh, basically saying Kamala Harris, the, the Joe Biden's VP pick, is ineligible to be vice president because of her immigrant parents or something like that. Um, and Twitter has been going nuts about it all week. They're calling it birther 2.0, you know. Um, so I saw this uh, looking around the other day. Look at the article on Newsweek and the guy who wrote it, his name is John Eastman. And uh, he's a professor of law at some university. I can't remember now, but it also said he was a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute. And, um, you know, that's just like another one of the millions of, of, of conservative think tanks and policymaking shops out there. Right. But I know the Claremont Institute because it came up in the context of the Unification Church when I was researching it over the last few years, uh, namely because it was headed for a while, one of the VPs anyway, it was a guy named Michael Warder. Michael Warder was uh, a leader in the Unification Church and a close associate of the allegedly Reverend Moon. Um, I think he was actually the chief of the UC operation in the United States around 1977. Uh, he was one of the biggest stockholders in Moon's conglomerate businesses, his umbrella, Tongil Enterprises, and uh, Rand published one of his newspapers, uh, News World, out of New York City. And, uh, you know, if you look at that guy's bio, Michael Warder, He's checking all the boxes, Council for National Policy, Heritage Foundation, Rockford Institute, um, ran Pepperdine College for a while. And that was one of these schools that had that spiritual mobilization, anti-communist, you know, seminars. I think Charles Willoughby spoke at one of them. Um, but anyway, so there's, you know, and so Michael Warder actually left the Unification Church and, and did so pretty publicly and actually talked about it on uh, ABC or Frontline. That was I don't remember if that's ABC or NBC, but um, and he has a pretty PB compelling reason. I'm sorry, hey, Keith. What's that? Go ahead. I was just saying, I think that's PBS that ran the Frontline documentary. I knew that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, he spoke to Frontline about it and gave some. Pretty compelling reasons for why he left, but, uh, you know, but he, he said it was a pretty clean break. Uh, and then some journalists in the U.S. throughout the 80s kind of questioned how clean of a break it really was. And we can get into that in a minute. But anyway, so there's an author, John Eastman, wrote a book or wrote, a, wrote an article for Newsweek this week that's kind of on the birther tip for, you know, revived now for, for Kamala Harris. Okay. Newsweek magazine, the venue in which it's published, um, made headlines a couple of years ago. They laid off a bunch of their editorial staff in like a kind of a surprise thing. And this was reported in Rolling Stone a couple of years ago. Um, and I think maybe last year their offices got raided on some kind of money, financial white collar crime kind of deal. And um, Newsweek got bought by a company called International Business Times a few years ago. And one of the heads of that company is a man named David Jang, J-A-N-G, who was an early 
Unification Church alumni used to brag about getting married in one of those famous mass weddings in 1975. Um, used to talk openly about it. And like Michael Warder and several other of your, your well-known kind of conservative policymakers over the last 40 years, felt the need at some point to spill some ink, make some statements, putting some distance between himself and the Unification Church. In the case of David Jang, he also had to backpedal off the accusations that he was telling his followers that he himself was the second coming of Christ. And it turns out, and Mother Jones did an expose about this in 2014, this guy David Jang has a little culty thing called the community that almost seems like a a continuation or like a spinoff carbon copy of the Unification Church itself. It's got the all the boxes being checked there, the, uh, you know, to join, to join the group, you kind of get groomed and drawn in gradually. Next thing you know, your wallet's a lot lighter and you're not allowed to talk to your family or friends. And there's all these teachings about, you know, that the guru is actually the second coming of Jesus, but you're not supposed to tell anyone. Um, so you have this, uh, birther hit piece being written by a guy who works with a conservative think tank that's about two degrees removed from Moon, writing in a magazine that's just like right bullseye on target, like carbon copy unification church itself. And that's from this week's headlines. Okay, so that relationship between conservative right wing think tanks and um, news organs, press organs, and the kind of messaging that they push is 100%. Oh, and their relationship to the Unification Church is 100% across the board everywhere you look for the last 40 plus years. Um, elite conservative opinion makers and policymakers, elite religious opinion makers, your televangelists, your moral majority types. Um, there's no part of these guys over the last two generations that's untouched by the unification church and that is a a big charge to be making you know but we'll back it up I, i can back it up but but before i do that i'll just say it gets even bigger than that um it it actually all throughout our culture our business our religion our government let me just uh throw some rhetoricals out there have you ever uh, practiced taekwondo (laughs) have you ever bought ginseng or shopped at a health food store have you ever held an ar-15 made by car arms in your hand or bought one of their one of their guns before Uh, have you ever heard of the moral majority and jerry falwell and liberty university and pat robertson have you ever heard of the bush family or the reagan people have you ever bought a copy or read an article from the Washington Times, or I guess it turns out Newsweek as well, for that matter. Uh, did you ever do a line of Coke back in the 80s? Oh, I was, I was, uh, I was a little kid, so I, don't, I wouldn't know, but you know. Um, have you ever voted Republican in a national election on a national ticket? You know, if the answer is yes to any of those questions, then you yourself are just like a few degrees removed or maybe had, maybe, I'm not saying, you know, 100%, but you may have had some kind of involvement 
either directly, like if you bought Washington Times, you're giving your dollar directly over. Certain brands of ginseng, yeah, that's direct. But, you know, um, some of those other things, I mean, the Taekwondo connection is more old, goes back to when Taekwondo first kind of came to the country. It's not so much now, but definitely if you were in a dojo back in the 60s, it would be right on target. Um, so what about sushi? Do you like sushi? <laughs> Do you like seafood? Um, you know, so so I, I took a crazy statement and then I made it even crazier. What the hell does sushi have to do with any of this? So I'll, we'll do a little experiment. I'll invite your listeners to do this. Go to Google and take everything I just said and enter it in the search bar and tag the end of it with Unification Church. George Bush, Unification Church. Sushi, Unification Church. Ginseng, Unification Church. Google AR-15 Unification Church and strap in and, and, and get ready to have your mind blown. Google Cocaine Coup Bolivia Unification Church and strap in. Google Council for National Policy, Republican Party, Conservative Politics, Unification Church. Pat Robertson, Jerry Falwell, any of these things that I just mentioned, just go to Google and watch the hits come in. And then you can do another experiment. Take your favorite leading conservative or not conservatives, <laughs> uh, conspiracy pundits, you know, William Cooper Unification Church, Alex Jones Unification Church, or pick any of your most favorite contemporary purveyors of conspiracy entertainment that you like to listen to or consume these days and punch in Unification Church by their name and observe the threadbare results that you get. Um, it's, it's like this open conspiracy. It's like right out in the open, this whole, you know, since I was, since I was born, you know, in the mid seventies, um, there's kind of two sides. There's two, two sides to the unification church and the moon empire. And one of them is the more well-known, um, and it's moon as the cult leader guy. And I watched a documentary last night called the blessed child it just came out last year and it's about a family that um the mother and father were actually big in the unification church the father was one of the chiefs you know in this country during the 60s and 70s i think maybe the 70s doesn't matter um he's still in it all of his kids have left and the story is being told by the daughter and she's talking about how she grew up and how she wound up leaving and and her siblings and how they've all escaped from it and and uh it gets into some of the foot you know some actual video footage and stuff i've only read about i've never really seen any of these things you know seen uh video of the, the rallies and the mass weddings and the mothers crying at the at, in a uh, in a courtroom environment saying give me back my my son or daughter you know this guy's cult activities kind of captured a whole generation and just like disciplined them, you know, um, and uh, really, you know, you could see these kids that they're grown up now and they're talking about the damage that it did to them. They, they're out of it. It would have been easier and they all acknowledge it would have been easier if they would have stayed in it. But they're talking about how difficult it is to have long term, meaningful relationships with people. 
because of the baggage and how rare it's going to be to find somebody that can actually understand and uh, be patient enough with them. Um, one of the sons was uh, was gay, and uh, that was a huge no-no in the Unification Church. It still is. Uh, and so his parents, these leaders of the Unification Church in America, big big personalities in it, you know, they they talk him into going to this place in in Korea where they'll get evil spirits out of you. And there's like footage of the a bunch of people sitting there beating themselves about the head with their hands, trying to get the the demons out of them, you know. So by Google, the, by they, the way, Keith, yeah. I've I've been there a couple of times and I've done that whole beaten slapping thing a ton wow. of times. Just just to mention, yeah, go well, ahead. You, you can Google. Gay Conversion Therapy Unification Church, and you'll probably get some hits on that one, too. Um, so that, you know, I mentioned this in the 4GW podcast, you know, the whole cult deprogramming industry, cult awareness network kind of really had the, the Unification Church gave them a lot of business uh, in the 70s and in the 80s. And, you know, you can see this on, on these, this video footage, people you know, just openly saying they're, they're brainwashing our, our youth. They're brainwashing our children. Uh, they're comparing Moon to Stalin and Hitler and calling him satanic, which uh, was a relief to me because I, I, that's the way I look at the guy. And I feel like I'm out on a limb. And then I see this last night and it's like, great. You know, it's, I'm not the only one that sees this guy that way. Um, so that whole cult thing, you know, taking taking kids and, and adults and brainwashing them and make them sell flowers and trinkets 15 hours a day for for a bowl of rice or whatever you get at the end of the day for all your your work. Um, the the lady, the mother in the in the documentary, um, she's in the church. She has a baby. The baby's six weeks old, and she gives it over to this nanny who's shepherding like some 22 dozen uh, Mooney kids, and she goes off. For two and a half years on a mission and leaves her six week old daughter and comes back, misses those first couple of years of her life, giving it to the Mooney Church. So this was like a horror show for people in the 1970s and in the 80s and to this day. OK, so that's the part everybody knows about the Moonies. And it's like really obvious and it's really in your face and it's really visceral to watch a documentary like that. But the other part, back to the beginning, this fanning out over all these different conservative policymaking uh, think tanks and politicians and bailing out Bridgeport University in Connecticut and bailing out uh, Liberty University, which would not exist if not for Moon's checkbook, right? And they're making headlines these days for their bad boy, uh, Falwell Jr. But so much of the mainstream of conservative politics has been and religion has been shaped by its symbiotic relationship with the unification church going back i want to say 50 years at, at least 50 years so the part that really gets me is that all those conservative you know policymakers and stuff i keep referring to i've seen the documents they all knew very well about all that mind control cult 
uh, family separation business, all that dark side of the Mooney thing. They knew about it before Moon ever even showed up in this country. And they went with it anyway. So you get, you know, alumni from the Young Americans for Freedom uh, supporting um, a cult. And cult and freedom are not two words that really belong in the same sentence. And it was just this Faustian bargain. And uh, so, you know, getting back to the, I mean, we've talked about in some of the previous podcasts, and you had Dr. Future on your podcast recently, uh, Recluse, and I listened to that. I tell you, that guy makes me want to go to church, honestly. He's a super cool guy. It's like going for the best, the best side of Christianity. That guy really knows how to talk that line. I'm ready to, I'm ready to uh, hit it up on Sunday. But anyway, um, he talked about, you know, kind of the closet cases for moral purity thing. And we kind of talked about that. I like to pick on Marvin Liebman. You know, Frank Buckman belongs in that discussion. But it's not the point. The point is you can often um, tell what somebody's little secret thing they have in their closet by the thing that they're, they can't shut up about publicly, right? That kind of weird closet case dynamic. Well, in Moon's case, you can Google Unification Church, Reverend Moon, Satan, and just watch how many times that word Satan, the guy can never shut up about Satan, you know? And um, in the Old Testament, in the Bible, the word Satan actually means like um, accuser or adversary, you know? You know, so like your, your Lucifer would be your uh, original anti-establishment candidate, right? Uh, cutting against the grain. You know, so like small s satanic energy to me, in my opinion, is like transgressive, boundary violating, going against, violating the norms, you know. And that is what this guy did the whole time, especially, you know, uh, from the 90s onward, the later part of his life. But but it was always there. Um, So just like openly showing his contempt for the American system of government. It's weak. He called America uh, Satan's harvest. There's that word again. Um, you know, just a society given over to licentiousness and this democracy garbage, you know, that's just a slippery slope to communism. The best thing would be a totalitarian one-world government, one-world theocracy with himself as the theocrat-in-chief you know, who declared himself to be the Messiah, the, the second Adam, the Lord of the second advent here to finish the mission that Jesus tried and failed to do. All of this is just like complete blasphemy. It cuts 90 percent or 90 degrees against the grain of what you would think of when you think of American. Um, our system of government. You know, democracy and pluralism. One world government, one world theocratic thing. You know, he's like saying, uh, what was the quote? Uh, separation of church or politics and, and religion is, quote, what Satan loves the most. There it is again. You know, so utterly violating the norms of America's system of government. And then by declaring himself to be the Messiah and the second coming and Jesus failed and I'm here to right his wrongs is utterly cutting against the grain of the religion. And yet, um, the people that were 
these conservative people and policymakers and elites and religious elites that were supposed to be the stewards of that system of government and the people that were supposed to be the stewards of that religion utterly sold out to this guy and his church. And they got away with it. They got away with it. You know, I mean, this thing from Newsweek this week is small potatoes. You know, Um, the Heritage Foundation got like $2.2 million from the moons, like right around the time Reagan got into office. And it's on record, you know. So, so much of conservative politics is just like wrapped up in this whole thing. And there's never been like really an, an accounting for it. Um, so I want to get out of the way and let some other people talk because I think these guys are going to get into the meat and potatoes of some of this. I'm just kind of giving an overview and exasperated, like, how could this be so ignored and swept under the rug? You know, I'll give Christianity Today, that that publication, some credit for actually continuing to write about moon tithes with uh, different religious groups. They're, they're still doing that into the 21st century. So I'm not going to say everybody's totally ignored it. But anyway, just yeah, for I mean, your go ahead. Oh, yeah, there's only like been also, I mean, just to put in perspective, only been a handful of really scholarly publications as well. I mean, outside of kind of the conspiratorial stuff. I mean, obviously, there was the fabulous essay by Jeffrey Bale and the uh, second darkest side of politics book. And what uh, it's definitely dressed in uh, inside the league, of course. And what else is there, Keith? You, you actually made me segue into what I was going to say before I shut up here that <laughs> um, the, the culty side, everybody can kind of find out about that. Everybody kind of knows about that. But for people that want to look into like the political side of it, you know, and all that uh, conservative think tank uh, galaxy that Moon's Enterprise runs like a thread through every single piece of it. I would recommend two books, um, Gifts of Deceit by Robert Boddicher, early recipient of the Gary Webb Award, um, and Bad Moon Rising by a guy, John Gorenfeld, that came out in 2006. So uh, Gifts of Deceit was written around 1980, and Moon was just getting started. You know, uh, the 2006 one, uh, Bad Moon Rising, you know, you can see more of the Bush and Bush Jr., you know, and, and what happened during the Reagan years kind of kind of takes on it. And then finally, um, you can Google one more time uh, unification church front groups. And there's a couple of websites out there that they just number into the hundreds, the thousands, pharmaceutical companies, health food companies, seafood companies, sushi restaurants, gun manufacturers. You know, and then all the politics, the think tanks, the different kinds of churches, the different association of this and that. Um, And you can just see all this for yourself because none of this is is like contested history. None of this is like really controversial at this point. Like I said, they got away with it. So, you know, it's only a war crime if you lose, you know. (laughs) Absolutely. And I mean, you know, just to put this in perspective, I mean, just, uh, you know, do a basic Google search on uh, the process church of final judgments, serial killers or something like that. And you'll get probably hundreds of thousands of hits. 
Um, you know, maybe the process did have some nefarious connections, maybe it didn't. Certainly the major purveyor of that uh, perspective, Maury Terry, is himself a very uh, compromised figure, to put it mildly. But regardless, uh, the Unification Church had its own links to a lot of very, very nasty people, and it had it on an international scale to the t uh, with uh, billions of dollars of funding and uh, any number of other unsavory connections. And um, yeah, it has not been addressed very much, especially not in podcast for that matter either. And certainly very few of the ones who have done it did happen to have their own former Mooney with them to discuss it. But we do here at the farm. So that brings us to the section of the main event. All right, Don, now to start out with, you know, you obviously have a different perspective on the origins of the Moonies and really every other aspect of this than most any other researcher because of your own life experiences. Now, one figure that you've linked is uh, Sigmund, to Sigmund Rhee's uh, South Korean government, and a possible move, uh, Mooney is an interesting one, and that's Walter Profeta. The head of Peter Lavenda's American Orthodox Catholic Church, a wandering bishop par excellence. And for yeah. those of you who are not aware of this, the American Orthodox Catholic Church has a lot of strange connections, both to the intelligence community and the occult underground as well. Very curious thing, and certainly interesting to find Profeta turning up here. So, what was Profeta doing on behalf of the South Korean government, and what organization was he linked to at the time, Don? Well... Uh, before I get into that, I just want to thank Keith for everything yes. that, he, that he just said. Yes, um, Keith, that was fabulous, sir. Uh, there were some things there that were really striking a chord, obviously, <clears throat> you know, given yes. my history and whatnot. And even bringing up Michael Warder, uh, that was kind of important for me because we still don't really know exactly what happened when Michael Warder ended up uh, taking off, as it were, uh, from the Unification Church. And I'll just say this. <clears throat> it's hard to believe that someone who takes off from the Unification Church would, by doing so, get what I'll call a promotion. What I mean by that is he, leave, he leaves the Unification Church, and the next thing you know, he's the frickin' treasurer for the Heritage Foundation. Now tell me, how, how does that work? I'm just going to leave that, you know, as, as it is. Anyway, you guys can kind of fill in the blanks in terms of what, what that all may mean. So anyway, thanks, Keith, for everything that you shared there. You know, maybe I'll get back to some of that stuff um, as I'm going through. So anyway, let's talk about Walter Profeta. So we're talking basically right at the end of the Korean War. It's November 1953, and Waldo Profeta uh, meets with the Korean United Nations ambassador, whose name is Ben C. Lim. By the way, it was quite common for Koreans that speak English well, who have lived in the United States, to take on an English first name, you know, thus the first name Ben. So this Ben C. Lim guy who met with Walter Profeta was not only the UN ambassador, he was also a member of, of what I like to call the kitchen cabinet of Sigmund Rhee, who was, as you were mentioning, Recluse, you know, he was the South Korean leader at that time. So this kitchen cabinet, as I'm calling it, 
you know, you, you have these guys that have known Re for years, Re having lived in the United States for, you know, an extensive period of time before he comes over to Korea to eventually become the first president uh, of Korea after the end of World War II. So anyway, these guys that are close to Re, they too, having been in the United States for a long period of time, uh, knowing Re, <clears throat> they're, they're advising Re on just about anything that you can think of. The, these men, as I'm kind of alluding to, they had extensive U.S. educations. Um, you know, like I said, they lived in the United States for, long period, for a long period of time or long periods of time, just like Re. So thusly, they had known Re for a very, very long time. I mean, you, you'd almost have to say that these guys, you know, you might want to call them, <clears throat> excuse me, the beginning of the Re lobby in the United States. That's how significant these guys were. So needless to say, Men C. Lim was very close to Re. Now, how Ambassador Lim and Walter Profeta you know, getting back to them now, how these two guys got to know each other exactly is and probably will remain a mystery. However, what we do know is this, Profeta was the pastor of a Ukrainian Orthodox church in the heart of North Jersey, North New Jersey, which by the way, um, has been a hotbed for decades uh, especially when you go back around the World War II period. It's been a hotbed for many radical right groups and politicians over the years. So Profeta, who's right there at the heart, you know, in the heart of North Jersey, he meets Ben C. Lim at his church. Okay. And once again, we're talking, you know, November 1953 here. And during their time together, it appears that Profeta informs Ambassador Lim about the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations. We can essentially deduce this because a couple of weeks after this meeting, Ambassador Lim is invited to the 10th anniversary celebration of ABN. And in a congratulatory speech that, that Lim gave at that event, he actually credits Profeta for connecting him to the ABN. And uh, just to clarify something, this event was put on by what is called the American Friends to the ABN. This organization, in essence, uh, serving as the U.S. headquarters for ABN. So... Here we have this high-level South Korean foreign diplomat who has now established a formal relationship with the ABN at the end of 1953, which, once again, this is you know pretty much right after the Korean War is over. And it's just astounding to think that Walter Perfetta, this guy with, with all of his cachet, when we're talking about Peter Lavenda, and whatnot, that this guy is the guy that brought about this this meeting. I mean, I mean, Profeta, I mean, he's he's a huge topic when you're talking about Peter Lavenda. You know, Lavenda comes up with this series of books called Senator For Sinister Forces. 
He places this guy right in the middle of the JFK conspiracy. I mean, for crying out loud, Jim Garrison even wrote a letter to Profeta wanting some information from him. Okay? You know, Jim Garrison, who, you know, was the one who... Anyway, he the name speaks for itself, right? So, now I've painted that... Now that I've painted that strange picture for you, let's jump a couple of months ahead here from when this Lim Profeta meeting took place. Now we're in January 1954. And now we have another person working within the very same foreign ministry of South Korea. Once again, the Ambassador Lim, he, he's a part of the foreign ministry, foreign relations, okay, working directly under re right so here's this other guy who's in the foreign ministry not a high level figure but he but he's working in the ministry and that person is named sung chul kim more commonly known as david kim and what this foreign ministry guy does is once again we're talking january 1954 he goes down to a small city called Tegu, which is in the southern part of South Korea. And get this, while he's there, he ends up visiting the nascent Moon Organization. Moon's organization isn't even officially on the map yet. That doesn't come until a few months later, where if you're a Moonie, you celebrate the beginning of the Unification Church as being May 1st, 1954. This is before that, okay? So, so this guy, David Kim, he goes down, he's, he's working at the foreign ministry. For some reason, he goes down to Tegu. I don't know if he's on, on, on official business or not and fits this visit in while he's on official business. Th that, that's just not known. I don't know if we'll ever know for sure. But anyway, as the story goes, okay, as it's told to many a Mooney, like myself, David Kim was informed by one of his colleagues who was also apparently working within the foreign ministry along with David Kim. So this colleague told Kim that there was this so-called messianic group in Tegu that Kim might want to check out for himself, okay? That it's it's intriguing, you know, you know, you should find out what this guy is all about, etc., so forth and so on. So as the Mooney story goes, David Kim was so intrigued by what this guy's name is, C.W. Lee. We never learn what the guy's first name is. He's just known as C.W. Lee. So anyway, C.W., the C.W. Lee character, David Kim's colleague, as I just said, said to him that, that you know, that he, he needs to find out what this guy is all about, you know, plain and simple. So getting to the main point here now, at least in how I see things anyway. David Kim, this guy who's working in Sigmund Rhee's government in the Foreign Ministry Department, he not only visits Moon's group, he ended up liking what he heard so much that he just went ahead and joined Moon's group. Which now, remember, according to Mooney lore, that would mean that David Kim is accepting the belief that Sun Myung Moon is the second coming of Jesus. So, moving along here, David Kim joins Sun Myung Moon's religious group, 
at the beginning of 1954. Remember, this is only coming a couple months later after this Profeta Ambassador Lim meeting, okay, over the United States where the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations comes into view, okay? So only a few months later from this meeting, Kim is orchestrating the paperwork. Now we're, now we're into May. He's orchestrating the paperwork to register Sun Young Moon's group under Sigmund Rhee's government. And that, my friends, is when we say, like I said before, is when the official beginning of the Unification Church begins. The Moonies officially begin. And it wasn't even called the Unification Church back then, by the way. The church signpost in Seoul, Korea said, along with the Korean name, which I can't pronounce or whatever, but the signpost had English and Korean on it. You know, get that. So in English, it says the Holy Spirit Association for the Unification of World Christianity. I will leave that up to your imagination. Why, right after World War II, why this little new church, so to speak, had to have the English translation for what it was in Korean. So anyway, I'll leave that to your imagination. Anyway. The Holy Spirit Association for the Unification of World Christianity. I mean, what a what a misnomer if I ever I heard one. Being an ex-Mooney, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. <laughs> oh well, I was only a Mooney for thirty six years, guys. I guess that I guess that's not so bad, right? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that is just fascinating, Don. Um, and uh, just to remind those of you listening to us, um, you know, that's the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations. They were one of the two central groups involved in the founding of the World Anti-Communist League. Of course, we addressed them in the first installment of this series. We've got uh, our own a ABN expert, Moss Robinson, who will be back with us in the next episode. But um, that kind of brings in my next question, which is the other major co-founder of Wackle. That's an organization known as the Asian People's Anti-Communist League, or APACL, which is clearly the Asian section. All right, Don, so what was the role that the Moonies had in the early days of APACL? Yeah. Um, Recluse, if, if you don't mind, let me just let me just mention just a couple of last things uh, based upon the last question before we jump to the next question. Oh, absolutely, question. absolutely. Because I want to I be able to create a little bit more of a of an entire landscape here of, of what we're looking at back, looking at. So, you know, getting, getting back, there's really something else that we need to keep in mind here. And it's this, it, it's only six weeks after the official establishment of Moon's organization that we have the first Asian people's anti-communist league conference or APACL as the acronym goes. It's, it's only six weeks after this David Kim guy joins Moon's church, orchestrates the paperwork, and then six weeks six weeks later, we have this first APACL event held right there in South Korea, where Moon is. And of course, I'm going to be speaking about APACL in a bit, like you were, you know, uh, asking. So to conclude my answer to your question, Recluse, this first question, in other words, we we don't have any concrete concrete proof or paper trail anywhere 
that can link the meeting of Ben C. Lim and Profeta or the subsequent attendance of Lim to that anti-Bolshevik block of nations gathering. We can't definitively link any of that with the doings or goings on of David Kim, uh, who I haven't mentioned yet. He eventually became the second person to go to the U.S. to start the Mooney operation there. Um, so, and parenthetically, the first person that got sent to the U.S. by Moon to go to the U.S. was Young Un Kim, who I spoke at great length during our Moral Rearmament podcast, okay? So, given everything I've said so far, and given all that we know already about how significant the ABN's influence was in the early years of APACL, as you were alluding to, you know, that podcast with Moss, etc., we have to question whether the official beginning of Moon's organization coming immediately, coming immediately before this beginning of APACL, we have to question whether or not there's a connection there. Is it a so-called coincidence or not a coincidence at all? Could the ABN be connected with the beginnings of both the Moon organization and APACL? Was this ABN joint? Was this a joint ABN political action affair, so to speak? And is there more to Walter Profeta, or more to the Walter Profeta Ambassador Lim relationship than meets the eye? Uh, could Profeta have any connection at all with the beginnings of the Moon Organization? In other words, Ambassador Lim also would eventually become a prominent figure in the World Anti-Communist League. So all these questions really need to be asked. Uh, I'd give almost, <clears throat> excuse me, I'd give almost anything to know the answers and not have to theorize here. But I think you guys know already kind of how I'm thinking here, you know. Yeah, so, absolutely. So, so anyway, that was how I wanted to finish your, uh, your first question. Okay. I gotta say, yeah, and I just gotta say, I mean, it's just amazing that Profeta is there, and um, you know, I've got to thank you too for definitely bringing this connection out to the ABN. I mean, that's uh, something that, as far as I know, has never really been discussed publicly before in any kind of uh, you know publication on this or anything to that matter. So, you know, that's a big piece of the puzzle, I think, in understanding Profeta and uh, the ongoing significance of the American Orthodox Catholic Church in the following decades after this. Uh, and just certainly the strange netherworld of these various cults and um, the fact that the many nominally Christian ones and nominally occultic ones are, you know, not ha do not have that many degrees of separation between them. All right. But um, after those thoughts, Don, do you want to get into a packle for us? Uh, yeah, no problem. So anyway, to begin your answer, I think it would be good to review something that I mentioned in our Moral Rearmament podcast. And basically the point is this. When analyzing the early years of Sun Myung Moon and his organization, it is absolutely crucial that we not view Moon as this singular mammoth cult figure with all these minions surrounding him. We instead should focus our attention on some of the key Korean people close to Moon. People that have either a Western education and or have worked with the American military in some way. 
David Kim, for an example, the guy that I just brought up, right? He's a really good case in point here. In the years immediately following the end of World War II, David Kim worked with the United States military government in Korea in the finance ministry. This was between the years 1945-1948, immediately after the Korean War is over, the United States sends in a government, literally a government, to oversee South Korea. And they're there for a three-year period, 45 to 48. So they're governing everything in Korea at this time. And as I just mentioned, David Kim you know, who's who's working for the Americans in the finance ministry at this time. Then later after that, he ends up working in Sigmund Rhee's president presidency in the foreign ministry department. Okay, as I as I just covered. And it might be good to keep in mind here that David Kim during this period, his interests could have been just as much for what the American interests are in Korea, if not more so, than his Korea his Korean interests are as being a Korean national, as being an ethnic Korean. If you guys catch my drift here. At least that's how I see things anyway. You know, given the fact that David Kin would find himself in the US working for Moon there by 1959. So I wanted to make that a point. Now, another key Korean close to the moon who also had U.S. ties, one of these people that we have to look at is a man called, called Song Ik Che. He took on the moniker Papa Sun Che, you know, amongst us Moonies. So this is the man that some listeners are going to remember from the Moral Rearmament podcast, because this is the guy who started Moon's organization in Japan in 1958. So what are Song Ik Chai's ties to the U.S., someone might ask? Well, it just so happens that Song Ik Che worked as a translator for the U.S. military government in Korea during the exact same time that David Kim was working with the U.S. military government, he being in the finance ministry, okay? So now we have two key people connected to Moon, both having worked with the Americans immediately following World War II, that eventually become the ones to help Moon expand his operation to Japan and the U.S. Sorry, I'm getting kind of worked up here, guys. But remember, I'm an ex-Mooney here. Oh, okay. no, it's great. It's great. And and then there's a third person named Young Wee Kim who also worked with the Americans in Korea after World War II. And he also worked as a translator just like Song Ik Che. But in his case, he had two translation jobs. The first was with the U.S. Information Agency, which spells intelligence, of course. And then the second translation job was with the United States Korean Reconstruction 
agency. That job being during the Korean War. And then further ahead, the same guy, Young Wee Kim, by 1956, which is only a few years later, this Young Wee Kim character would become the top leader of what was called the Sungwa Christian Student Association. And throughout the late 50s, okay, Young Wee Kim was the head of this Sungwa Christian Student Association, which I'm going to tie to APACL here in a little bit. At least that's a part of my theory. Okay. So, so we, you know, we Moonies, ex-Moonies, whatever. I mean, we didn't know hardly anything about the resumes of these people that were surrounding Moon, okay, uh, at the very beginning. Okay. It, it, it just went completely under the radar. So, oh, and of course, uh, I'd be remiss to not mention Bohi Pak here. Okay. <laughs> which, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I knew that'd get a rise out of you, Keith. I mean, I'll be talking about him a little later. Of course, he has his links to the U.S. military also before he eventually connects with Moon. So the conclusion here to this little review, okay, going back to my moral rearmament uh, talk, is basically this. When you start to examine the Moon organization very closely, it is always necessary to focus more on the word organization than it is on the word Moon. Exactly. Okay, so obviously I've, I've made my point here, okay? At least, I, at least I think I have. You know how so, the moon, the moon, the the, the magician ahead, says, "Watch my hands closely," and you've got kind of this distracting thing while the sleight of hand is taking place. That that that's Moon's job. You know, to be the weird thing that captures all the attention, so you don't look behind the curtain at all this other stuff. You know what I mean? That's that's the way it looks to me. Yeah, no, that's a pretty fair way of saying it, Keith. Yeah, very very good point. Yeah. So now, getting to the relationship between APACL and the Moon Organization uh, during these Sigmund Rhee years, you know, meaning 1954 to 1960. Unfortunately, I'm still basically forced to theorize. We just don't have hard documents or eyewitness accounts, et cetera, that allow us to put APACL and the Moon Organization in the same room, so to speak. However, I do think I have some pretty compelling circumstantial evidence. I guess that's the term I should use here. Anyway, I think I've got some things here. I think I have some things here that I believe will leave our listeners with a pretty good idea of what the reality was. So looking at it simply, APACL, in my mind, is an organization that was created as a tool or a means by which to educate the masses on how to think and act, the Asian masses, I should say, on how to train them how to think and act like an anti-communist, right? I mean, that's pretty simple logic. I think that's pretty clear. 
Well, according to how I see it, that's exactly what the Moon Organization was created for, even back then. Of course, we hear all the age-old stories as Moonies, as I did most of my life as a Moonie, that Moon was struggling just to keep his organization alive, that Sigmund Rhee was his arch enemy, all that kind of stuff. Well, what if the opposite was true? What if Sigmund Rhee was actually fully endorsing Moon's activities? Because a lot of what I see or what I've seen in my research seems to suggest just that. And the reason why I say that is because it is all over the Unification Church archives that Moon's so-called church, through, through its first official front group, which is established only a, only a few months after David Kim orchestrates the paperwork, as I mentioned to you before. So that front group gets established in 1954. So now we're talking only a half year after APAC and the Unification Church get officially established. So it's that front group, that first front group of Moon's organization that was allowed by Sigmund Rhee's government, okay, to bring an anti-communist curriculum into all levels of primary education in South Korea. And it really started to take off from, say, the end of 1955, beginning of 1956 onward, which is when Young Wee Kim, who I just talked about a, a couple of moments ago, that's when he takes organization, right? And this is all just, you know, rummaging in my mind. How, how do I make heads and tails out of all this? So unless I'm missing something here, isn't, isn't this whole idea of, of bringing an anti-communist education into all these different levels of, of education, isn't that what this nascent APACL isn't that what they would want to do also? Wouldn't they want to bring an anti-communist curriculum into all levels of education in Korea? Well, of course they would. So therefore, it is more than plausible that Moon's first front group promoting anti-communists was also a secret front for the Asian People's Anti-Communist League. That's what I'm positing here. Okay. And as a side note, Young Un Kim and Wan Pak Che, these two ladies that I mentioned in the MRA podcast, they joined up with Moon the exact same month, December 1954, that this APACL secret front that I'm talking about, secret front meaning that Moon's group is connected over with APACL that this Sungwa Christian Student Association okay, was founded the exact same month that MRA Young Un Kim, quote unquote, joins the organization. Now, people can view that as a coincidence if they want, but I'm not buying it, especially when it comes to Young Un Kim. Almost nothing is a coincidence with this lady. I mean, after all, these two ladies would 
would basically become the two most important women in the Unification Church in the 1950s, 1960s, and even into the early 1970s. Now, moving along here, when I was combing through the Woodrow Wilson archives, which houses the APACO collection, Keith knows about this archive quite well. Anyway, <clears throat> excuse me. I when <clears throat> excuse me. When I was going through all these documents, I found the bylaws, meaning the principles, objectives, and functions of APACL when it was established. And it said and it said that APACL needed to create youth and women's organizations, which I thought was pretty logical. But then in thinking about it a little bit more, I realized that the reference to women's organizations was actually pretty significant. And I say that because there was this lady named Helen Kim, who was the dean of AY University. Now we're talking about literally the most prestigious women's university in the world at that time. And two of her top professors were, I think you're gonna guess it, were Young Un Kim and Wan Pak Che. Furthermore, three other professors and 14 students from AWA, AWA University, also ended up joining Moon's organization. And once again, and this is all occurring shortly after Moon established this first front group called the Sungwa Christian Student Association, which I've already pegged as a secret APACL front, working in conjunction with Moon, right? But the most important fact of all to me in helping my theory along is that Helen Kim, besides being the boss of two of Sun Young Moon's future prize converts, she was also, wait for it here, guys, she was also the vice chairman of the Korean chapter of APACL. Yep, that's right. Yeah. The university that had five of its professors and 14 of its students joined Sun Myung Moon's church. That very same university had a dean that's vice chairman to the Korean chapter of APACL. And two of these professors in all likelihood I'm talking about Young Un Kim and Wan Pak Che, but I'm especially going to focus on Young Un Kim here, who who we know now surely must have had ties to the MRA. So theoretically, what we got here is we got MRA, APACL, and moon connection moon connections right before our very eyes. It's right, right there. Right at the beginning. To, yeah, it's right there to see for those who have eyes to see. Of course, people have been turning a blind eye to things like this for years, especially if you're an ex-Mooney like me, right? Because anyway. that's not the story. The story is the, the what are they, you know, the mind-controlled kids, uh, you know, getting falling in with carp on the college camp. You know what I mean? It, it, it sucks up all the, the oxygen. That's what I was just trying to say a minute ago. So, but, but there's this whole other part, and you're like really digging into that and, and the origins of it. I just know that because I've done my homework on this, you're you're dropping some stuff that you're not going to find in any book. 
you know, oh, no. but oh, please no. continue, sir. I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's, no, no. And by, and by, and stuff. by the way, oh no. And by the way, carp that you just mentioned. Yeah. That that's, that's, a, that's an extension or a projection of this first front group, this Sungwa Christian student association. It's ba- it's basically a, another iteration of <clears throat> or an example of front groups evolving and changing their names over time. That's that's all CARP is. Right. So CARP CARP eventually. So I mean anyway, we haven't de- really fa- defined CARP. CARP is the Collegiate Association for the Research of Principles. Once again, one of these. <laughs> what. One of these front group names, okay, that just leaves you, you like, just like, uh, okay, what does that mean? It means so, divine principles. Right. Well, right? that's right. Well, that's where it leads to. I mean, eventually, it all leads to indoctrination based upon these so-called revelations that that are eventually going to tell you that Moon is the second coming of Jesus, right? Yeah, that's the divine principle in question here. Yeah. Right. Right. So anyway, I just had to add that about CARP, you know, since you brought it up. So so anyway, adding, adding to my theory here now that there really is this early APACL moon organization connection. There was another university located just down the road from AWA. I mean, these, these two institutions were basically like sister uh, institutions, okay? There was so much overlap between them. So... This particular institution, university, college, I'm referring to now was called the Chosun Christian College, which later took on the name Yonsei University. But anyway, I'm going to refer to it as it was called then. It's called the Chosun Christian College. And the man who ended up becoming the head of that institution was a guy by the name of L. George Peck. He was the dean. And this guy also lost, quote unquote, lost a couple of people to Moon. He had a professor and a few of his students that ended up joining the Unification Church at that same time. Okay, that those over at AY University ended up joining. And George Peck was also wait for it once again, don't fall out of your chairs. He was also a vice chairman for APACL, just like Helen Kim. But the most astounding fact of of all about George Peck or about all of this is that by 1958, only a few short years later, George Peck was representing Korea at the Mexico City Preparatory Conference for the establishment of a World Anti-Communist League. He was even appointed to the steering committee for establishing WACL, which of course doesn't materialize finally until the end of 1966, as you guys all know. Okay, but anyway, what I want you guys to know here is that this George Peck character He has gone completely under the radar as far as any talk about APACL or or WACL even, as far as that goes, and especially so 
when we're talking about his college having lost some students and a professor to Moon's little sect, we'll call it. I mean, I'm telling you, I've done everything I can over these past couple of years trying to get to the bottom of this guy, and it's a frickin' chore. My gosh. I even saw one article about the 1958 Mexico conference, and it said that Bohe Pak, yes, it said that Bohe Pak was the Korean was the Korean representative in Mexico City, not George Peck. I mean, mm. that ought to tell you something. Anyway, I guess that's enough of a rant on George Peck. I don't know. Sorry about that, guys. Oh, man. That was great. <laughs> okay, I get worked up. So, to conclude my answer here, Recluse, I don't think it takes too much of an imagination to see that when one looks at the people, groups, universities, etc., that are connected to either the Moon Organization or APACL, and when considering the very similar agendas of these two organizations, I believe we need to take quite seriously the idea as being fact that whoever was behind these two organizations, whether it be ABN, Western intelligence, US military intelligence, or any combination of the above, whatever, we've got to think that the plan from the very beginning was for the Moon Organization and APACL to be inextricably linked. And with that, I guess I'll throw it back to you, Recluse. Uh, I mean, that is just amazing, Don. Thank you so much for, I mean, that whole section there. All right, so let's move along here and get into another figure that uh, has some very interesting ties to the Unification Church. Now, one of the powerful figures in the American right that the Moonies made an early alliance with was none other than William Buckley, the founder of the National Review and the author of Man, God, and Yale, also a prominent Skull and Bones member as well. Buckley was in many ways the Rupert Murdoch of his era, and he had his own netherworld of organizations linked to him as well. What can you tell us about these connections, Don? Oh, hmm. man, William F. Buckley. Boy, have I, if I wanted a piece of that guy for these past few years. Oh, man, just the story that, yeah, this just never gets told. Anyway, I'm, I'm digressing. Okay, first off, I'm actually a little jealous of Keith right about now because Keith <laughs> has been recently sinking his teeth into a book about the Young Americans for Freedom, which was literally at the core of the William F. Buckley Network. And the other side of the 60s, the other side of the 60s, it's a history of young Americans for freedom. Please continue. That's the book. Yeah, right. Thanks, Keith. And given all my research, there is little doubt that if I'm to answer your question here, Recluse, in any meaningful way, my answer is absolutely going to have to include the YAF, okay, the Young Americans for Freedom. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. So, Keith, you know, if you if you feel as you have been, if you feel the inter need to interject something, uh, please be my guest. I want the listener to get the most out of this answer. The, <laughs> the, the, the Buckley Network is, like I keep saying, it's almost never addressed when it comes to the Moonies. It's just not something that seems to get a lot of play at all. 
So I'm really glad to have the opportunity to talk about it here. So, okay. So what should I what should I say here? Now going back to the late 1950s. Um, okay, one of the one of the biggest questions I have that for years now that has really occupied my mind uh, is is this. So Young Un Kim, who everyone should know by now, whether it be this podcast or the previous podcast with MRA. Okay, and I don't think I've mentioned this yet. Oh, actually, I think I did. She was the first Korean to go to the United States to start Moon's organization there. So what prompted Young Un Kim, or what was the deciding factor that brought her to the point of leaving Korea for the United States when she did? I have thought long and hard about this. And once again, I'm going to have to theorize here, but I think it has something to do with Tung Sung Park, who by the 1970s was right in the middle of Korea Gate with the Moon Organization, which, which, is, which is something we're going to get to later. Now, going back to the late 1950s here, or we're, we're, we're in the 1950s here, 1956 to be exact, Tung Sung Park comes to the U.S. to attend Georgetown University. Now, parenthetically, that's where Lev Dobriansky is, an American-Ukrainian who would become a top advisor for the Young Americans for Freedom. And he was also the head, as people would know from the uh, podcast with uh, Moss and the ABN, people would know that Lev Dobriansky was the head of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, which was ostensibly a front for the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations, which is one of the big neo-Nazi backers of the World Anti-Communist League. So getting back to Tung Sung Park here, by 1958 at Georgetown, Park helped establish the Korean Students' Federation, an anti-communist group, but he did so with another YAF figure, the infamous Douglas Caddy of Watergate fame, who was also, get this, who was also best friends of E. Howard Hunt, who in turn, he had worked in the CIA with William F. Buckley down in Mexico City during the early 1950s. And Buckley, of course, is the main founder of YAF, which got established a couple of years later in 1960. And of which Doug Caddy was all up in in the earliest, you know, in the early days. Right. 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 Speaking of Watergate, just real quick, because I, I have been reading this book. I'm almost done with it. But there was some kind of uh, there were lots of power struggles in Young Americans for Freedom. And at some point, Doug Caddy in order to try to prove some kind of financial impropriety on the part of uh, one of the other factions, him and a couple of, you know, leg breaker types just strolled into a, a YAF headquarters and just kind of strong arm their way into making off with all the documents to try to prove something. It's just prefiguring the Watergate kind of days. But anyway, you, <laughs> you were saying, sorry. 
no, no, that that's interesting. Like I say, <laughs> I, 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 I appreciate and expect your interjections when, when uh, so instigated, quote unquote. So here's where my theory starts to take shape here. Uh, what, what makes, what makes the creation of this Korean anti-communist group at Georgetown by Tung Sung Park so interesting is that it is established in 1958, which coincides with the year that Young Un Kim left Korea to go start Moon's organization in the States. So to me, it just begs the question, did the Korean Students Federation, okay, this anti-communist group started by an ethnic Korean and a future YAF luminary, Douglas Caddy, did that have anything to do with the timing of Young Un Kim coming to the U.S. when she did? And was the Buckley Network as a whole, somewhere in the background possibly, somehow involved in getting Moon's operation to the States in, in that year of 1958? I guess you could say that these are my $64,000 questions. Uh, are you with me, guys? Yeah, and did you you mention that Tungson Park was roommates with Doug Caddy? Yeah, I was going to mention yeah. that in in a little bit. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. I think that's you exactly brought that up in the in the last yeah. the MRA podcast, but that's that's interesting, right? Right. The data point. Oh, quite, quite interesting. <laughs> so, um, so I think I need to also add something to the pot here. Young Un Kim is not the only Mooney to come to the U.S. in the late 1950s. David Kim, once again, there's that name. David Kim came to the States as well. Okay, he, he helped, once again, he helped establish Moon's paperwork in 1954, and that's when Moon officially is on the map. Okay, so here's the chronology here. Young Un Kim left Korea towards the end of 1958, and David Kim, who resigned from his post working for the foreign ministry of Sigmund Rhee's government. Shortly after David Kim did that, he came to the U.S. and joined up with Young Un Kim, who was, in, who was in Oregon. So we're talking the latter half of 1959 now. And then, as the story goes, in 1960, I mean, this is all verifiable, in 1960, Young Un Kim was forced to move from Oregon because the FBI had interests in her, quote unquote. So because of that, Young Un Kim, with her five original American Moonies in tow, you know, whatever, ended up moving down to the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco, where now... She would be in close proximity of MK Ultra operations. Kind of interesting, right? Mm. I, I wish I knew more about who Young Un Kim was connected with at that time. Anyway, we'll just have to let our minds wander as far as this hate Ashbury thing goes, at, at least for now. Don, what, what uh, time frame would this have been, by the way? So we're talking 1960 here. Okay, so, 1960. So, just right. So, so we're so this is all preceding the the you know Manson 
and it's preceding the processed church. It's preceding all the stuff that makes Hate Ashbury what it is or what it became. But I just don't think that we can dismiss out of hand the fact that Young Kim was more than happy to not only get one uh, townhouse there in Haight Ashbury, but then when they had to move from that townhouse, they ended up just moving right down the street into another townhouse right there in Haight Ashbury. She had no intentions of, of leaving the Haight Ashbury area when she had the opportunity of doing so. So it's all very speculative about this, but, you know, I've tried long and hard to try and see, you know, exactly who Young Eun Kim is meeting, et cetera, while she's there. But it's it's very, very foggy, but it's very, very scintillating to, to think about and to think what might have been. I hope I hope I'm making the point here. So it is certainly uh, very tantalizing. Yeah. So anyway, um, getting back to my theory, I've, I've been going back and forth with this about the the Buckley Network for these past couple of years. Does my theory hold up at the end of the day? Can I really tie Tung Sung Park, Sun Young Moon, and the Buckley Network together in 1958? Well, at at this point, I think I'm going to pull the John Bryson here. Meaning I'm going to take out a chapter of John's podcast, We've Read the Documents. Uh, I'd, I'd like to do that uh, just because I think it's really appropriate and uh, given that John's here. What do you think, John? Are you there? Oh, anyway, did we lose John for a second? Okay, anyway, no problem. So anyway. I'm here. I'm here. Oh, Sorry. you're there. Okay. Sorry, Don. I apologize. Yeah, not a problem. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I'm making you wait so long, but but anyway, I'm going to no, do... No, 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 it's not that. I, I had you on pause and I put my foot on the time. Yeah, no problem. So, so I'm going to do a... We, we've read the documents here, okay? Yes. Okay, so these are, uh, these are two articles. Uh, I'm just going to do brief excerpts. Two articles out of the Washington Post written at the peak of the Korea... Uh, the Korean scandal, the Koreagate scandal, okay, which I'm going to talk about more later. So, and I'm going to try and keep these uh, excerpts in chronological order for my purposes here. So, from the first article, we read, quote, After entering Georgetown as a freshman in 1956, Park, meaning Tung Sung Park, Park had been suspended for academic deficiencies and had gone to Seoul in 1960, where, according to a knowledgeable American source, he apparently had made powerful friends among the men closest to the new South Korean president, Park Chung-hee. Now, me speaking parenthetically here. There are three original Korean Moonies quote-unquote original Moonies, Moonies that joined in the late 1950s, that also made a powerful alliance with Park Chung-hee's inner circle at that time. And all three ended up becoming agents or employees of the KCIA, the Korean Central Intelligence Agency. 
And all three of these guys, get this, all three of these guys were recruited into the church by Young Un Kim. You just can't make these things up. Okay, now, now getting back to the excerpts here. Park set up and operated Washington's exclusive George Georgetown Club with the aid of Korean Central Intelligence Agency officials as a primary means in an illegal effort to influence U.S. politicians and officials. At least one founder, the late Marine General Graves B. Erskine, had been closely linked with high-level national intelligence activities. The club opened in the spring of 1966. Park acquired the lease on the club premises after returning from Korea to resume his studies at Georgetown University. Now, parenthetically, me speaking again, this guy, General Graves B. Erskine, get this, in 1966, when Bohe Pox Korean Cultural Freedom Foundation, KCFF, when Bohe Pak's organization established Radio Free Asia, <clears throat> that very same General Erskine was elected the executive director. And for those who question possibly how important this Erskine character was, this guy, this guy had under his wing, you know, or mentored, Edward Lansdale for quite some time, and that ought to speak volumes, I would say. So the fact that Erskine was working closely with both Tung Sung Park and Bohee Park is pretty significant here. Okay, so the next excerpt. Another founder of the George, Georgetown Club, another founder was Louise Gore, I have no idea if that's related to the, you know, the Vice President Gore. Anyway, another founder was Louise Gore, who was for eight years a member of the Maryland legislature and who in 1974 ran unsuccessfully for governor of Maryland. Gore said she first met Park in the late 1950s when he and another young man called upon <coughs> excuse me called called upon her to promote young americans for freedom a conservative youth group well there you go well there you go yeah <laughs> exactly that excerpt absolutely speaks for itself okay <clears throat> And that's out of a newspaper? What, what that was that? At, right out of the Washington Post in 1977. Right, oh, okay. in, the middle of, right in the middle of Koreagate. Right. right. So continuing. At one point before the club opened, the official, the, I'm sorry, the Office of the International Youth Federation for Freedom, a nonprofit anti-communist group of which Park was an incorporator, a director, and the president had moved into part of this space, meaning the Georgetown Club, okay? In those early days, IYFF, from time to time, was visited by CIA officials who wanted to check on its activities according to two apartments. 
IYFF associate. Okay, now now me again. So you guys, we've got Tung Sung Park involved in yet another anti-communist youth student organization. Now he's he's created another anti-communist youth group. Okay, which from the other research I've done is intimately connected with YAF and therefore by extension the Buckley Network. And furthermore, as, as a little bit of an aside, but an important one, the Korean girl dance troupe that Moon and Bohipak created in 1963, they were called the Little Angels. These young girls, some having just reached puberty, they ended up entertaining Tung Sung Park's clients at the Georgetown Club, which once again, it's the exact same place where this anti-communist organization has its headquarters. But I do want to say here that it's really hard to know exactly what that so-called entertainment might have entailed. But I am definitely tempted to think the worst if you guys know what I mean here. Yeah, it's a post-Epstein world. Yeah, sorry. Ugh. Well, yeah, that's kind of what I was, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of what I was suggesting here. Okay. There's not a lot of benefit of the doubt to go around anymore in the post Epstein world when it comes to that kind of stuff, you know? Uh, I guess not. You know, everything looks different with, with hindsight, whatever. Yeah. All right. So anyway, let, let me get back to the end of these excerpts. Okay. So when Tung Sung Park became president of the Korean Students Federation in the U.S. in 1958, the organization began distributing a glossy newspaper nationwide, and Douglas Caddy was listed on the masthead as a consultant. Well, that certainly speaks for itself, doesn't it? Right, yeah. Keith? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, continuing. Dung Sum Park in 1960 was the chairman of the Korean government-sanctioned student group in Seoul, that received a grant from the Asian Foundation. By the way, the Asia Foundation is just the CIA front, okay? So they received a grant from the Asian Foundation at the time. Now, okay, continuing. Tung Sung Park in 1962 helped with the preparations and participated in the visit to the United States by the founder and first director of the Korean CIA. The visit was coordinated by the American CIA. Come Kim Jong-pil's 1962 visit, he's the KCIA director, okay? Kim Jong-pil's visit was coordinated by American CIA operatives according to two itineraries, one in English and the other in Korean, which have been made available to the Washington Post. Kim Song-in, known as Steve Kim, who was Kim Jong-pil's translator, Steve Kim, according to U.S. diplomatic and intelligence sources, served for many years as the chief liaison officer between the KCIA and the American CIA. Okay, me again here. This guy, Steve Kim. This guy has quite a resume. First, back back circa 1956-1958, Steve Kim was was recruited, or at least educated by Young Un Kim, 
Okay, I talked about the three guys that Young and Kim recruited, right? That became KCIA people. Okay, Steve Kim is one of those. Is one of those. Okay, so Steve Kim was recruited or at least educated by Young and Kim. That information is verifiable. Okay, in the church archives, essentially. Second. Steve Kim would end up, a few years later after this Post article, he would end up as Bohe Pak's second-in-command at the Washington Times, which was arguably Moon's most important asset. And third, and possibly the most important data point at all, Steve Kim was a founding member and a high-level functionary for the Mooney Front Group called the Global Economic Action Institute. The name is basically telling you the essential purpose for the organization. There's got to be some kind of money laundering involved. And then when you think about the England affiliate to this organization, then you're really going to start scratching your head because the guy who's in charge of the sister affiliate for this you know, money laundering deal over in Britain, his name is Julian Amory. A Le Cirque, a Le Cirque figure par excellence. Recluse, you know all about Le Cirque, don't you? Oh, yeah. I mean, this was a guy who uh, eventually became the chairman by the 1980s. But, I mean, well before then, uh, he was just at the absolute forefront of covert operations in the U.K. for decades. I mean, you know, you kind of look at the sort of early post-World uh, War II, early Cold War glory years and Iran, Egypt, uh, Africa, you know, I mean, in various regions. I mean, he basically shows up everywhere with a bag of cash, even though he was not even involved in any formal intelligence service and nobody really knows where the money was coming from either um yes just a very nefarious figure who i mean really uh in a lot of ways was was principally responsible for creating the vast private military industry that we are now starting to see rolled out across the globe now um certainly just uh, an incredible figure on so many levels and uh not for many good reasons um and there's an interesting footnote he had a brother who was executed for treason after the second world war for being a nazi collaborator despite the fact that he like his brother were a quarter jewish and their father was instrumental in creating the state of israel uh so definitely try to wrap your brains around that one guys <laughs> anyway back to you don yeah, I mean, like I say, you just can't make this stuff up. Okay, so here, here's this guy with this, this, you know, very complete resume that you just eloquently expressed, and we got we got a direct line now to the Moon organization. I mean, about as direct as it get gets. But, but I'm sorry to say, it gets worse here. The the first head of this U.S. Global Economic a Action Institute was a man by the name of Robert B. Anderson. And this guy had high-level ties to Eisenhower, you know, served in the Treasury, Secretary of Treasury for Eisenhower. He's got a, he's got a long resume. But, but, here, but here's, here's the main thing about this guy's resume. This guy after World War II was the point man, you're going to love this, he was the point man that orchestrated the creation of the 176 bank accounts worldwide for the infamous Black Eagle Trust, that magnormous accumulation of Nazi and Japanese gold, 
the Japanese portion being referred to as the Golden Lily. There's a great book, Gold Warriors, that talks about this in amazing detail. And, and I'm still not done here with this little segue. Yoshio Kadama, who was the major steward of that Golden Lily loot, that Golden Lily gold, Kadama, by the 1960s, he would be tied to the Moon Organization as being, you know, the the big sponsor, you know, coming out of Japan. And, and just to top things off here, the guy that succeeded Robert B. Anderson, who ended up heading the Global, Global Economic Action Institute, the guy who succeeded was none other than Lev Dobriansky. So I've basically come full circle now. I mean, there's a lot to chew on here, isn't there, guys? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Okay, let me finish up the excerpt. So Tung Sung Park, I'm, I'm reading right out of the Washington Post here. Tung Sung Park in 1964 became incorporator, director, and president of an international anti-communist youth organization based in Washington, which had circumstantial links to the American CIA among Park's fellow incorporators and officers of, of IYFF was Douglas Caddy. Caddy was already well known on college campuses around the country during that period as one of the founders of the conservative Young Americans for Freedom. Okay, me again. I've, we've already covered that to a great deal, you know. So moving on here. The other officers included listed as secretary on the corporation, Roland M. Riddell, a former YAFer from Boston University. Riddell is the son of a former OSS officer who later worked on assignment for the CIA. The executive director of IYFF was another former YAFer, James Fred Cauldron. That, this is still the Washington Post article, okay? IYFF carried endorsements and photographs of such well-known anti-communists as Herbert A. Philbrick and Anna Chenault. So that was the last excerpt from these two Washington Post articles. But I do have one last thing I want to say. I want to mention something about Herbert Philbrick. This guy, as I think Keith is already aware of, this guy was on the board of pretty much, or advisor, on pretty much every anti-communist organization you can think of. And I'm not going to list them here. But I want to say about, but what I want to say about him is this. When Neil Salonen, the Mooney's top American anti-communist crusader, during one speech that Salonen gave at a Freedom Leadership Foundation-sponsored event, Salonen acknowledged he, he credited Philbrick more than anyone else for all the anti-communist training he received. So that, guys, I think is a good note to end on as far as my we've read the documents here. Okay. <laughs> oh, that okay. was great. I enjoyed the doc. <laughs> Man, okay. So, all right. Let me keep going here. Now, going back to 1958 again. It is more than a little interesting, okay, that Tung Sung Park established this Korean student anti-communist organization 
in the U.S. Having done so with the help of YAF founding member Douglas Caddy, who, as we talked about, or Keith brought it up a, a little while ago, he was Tung Sung Park's roommate at Georgetown University. And then when we look at FLF, it seems that Neil Salonen almost surely modeled his organization after YAF, okay? There wasn't the same emphasis on God, of course, but besides that, I think FLF and YAF were basically carbon copies of each other. And then shortly after FLF was established in 1969, at the first major function that FLF, FLF sponsored, the other sponsors included YAF and the Young Republicans, and the master of ceremonies or the guest of honor was none other, <clears throat> excuse me, was none other than Congressman Walter Judd. He was the guest of honor at this first major anti-communist front group for the Moonies event, okay? And then speaking about the Young Republicans, a few years later in 1974, at the World Anti-Communist League Conference held in Washington, D.C. that year, Neil Salonen of FLF and Roger Stone of the Young Republicans, yes, that Roger Stone, yeah. They sat together on the presidium for the youth representatives at that Wackle conference. You just don't know where Roger Stone is going to turn up, do you, Recluse? No, you do not. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> certainly in some pretty incredible places, that is for sure. Um, and it goes into something that Keith and I have been talking about, uh, you know, privately for a while now, and that's just how you can kind of see this younger generation being groomed in these different far-right organizations and how they eventually move into the leadership posts. I mean, it's a reoccurring theme with a lot of these organizations. Young American for Freedom is definitely a major one. Um, I've recently been watching the Netflix documentary series on the family, and you can kind of see a similar modus operandi with how they would uh, groom, you know, young recruits at Avonwald and that type of thing. So, yeah, I mean, it's... Um, it's a very powerful tactic, that is for sure. Can I throw yeah. in a Oh, absolutely, uh, absolutely, sir. Yeah, yeah you know, go Walter ahead, Keith. Judd, Walter Judd is, is talked about. See, I know Walter Judd strictly, you know, in, in earlier days, I knew him about him strictly in, in his, uh, his wackle context, which he was part of every American wackle uh, faction, you know, all the way into his dotage uh, in the U.S. Council for World Freedom in the 80s. But he was a conservative hero in the 50s. He was a China lobby guy. Oh, yeah. Uh, he, was, he was also a big proponent of this very thing that you're getting at with these anti-communist political warfare schools. He was pushing for that in Congress when he was a Minnesota congressman. Um, and, his, you know, and I talked about this in a podcast that I guess is going to get released here pretty soon when we talk about the China lobby and I go into Walter Judd a little bit more. But... Uh, he was kind of one of these elder um, figures that was looked up to greatly by the YAF guys early on. But speaking of the YAF, just, you know, this book, The Other Side of the 60s, again, so many names there. 
that I know from the WACL context in their foreign policy dealings, you know, and how they were working with the World Anti-Communist League. And I, I'll admit, it's only been in the last year that I'm looking at them with the eyes that almost everybody else looks at people like Lee Edwards and Doug Caddy and, you know, Marvin Liebman and whatever. They look at them as, you know, the young Americans for freedom and then the activism they did in the United States. Obviously, super important and probably more relevant to most of us. But um, that book, The Other Side of the 60s, it's in the car. I don't have it in front of me right now. But, uh, you know, it's not some expose. I mean, it's got favorable blurbs on the back cover from the likes of David Frum and William F. Buckley himself. Right. So it's not, you know, it's a pretty even handed and objective um, account of the whole thing, just just so we know, you know, just so it's understood, right? But in the book, you know, they talk about YAF being all about conservatism, and, and there was kind of this moderate, modern, technocratic, the New Deal is settled hash kind of uh, middle of the road republicanism, like you'd get with George Romney and, and the Rockefeller, Nelson Rockefeller and stuff, who became the boogaboos of the conspiratorial right, you know. As a result, same thing with Dwight Eisenhower. Anyway, these guys were like, we need a conservative. We need to take over the Republican Party and, and basically just dis dismantle the New Deal. But they allowed themselves and, and they did it. all. They did a lot of this by dirty tricks, you know, and just like showing up at, at, at these these meetings and these uh, conferences where they're settling their. Uh, their platforms and what they're going to be about and stuff, and they'd be harassing people from the other factions and snatching the microphones out of their hands and all the kind of stuff that you see in the house of representatives today <laughs> kind of the circus uh i won't name names but you you know um was present at the creation of the yaf guys and the last thing i'll say about it you're talking about the the similarities you know uh with what would later become the moonies and the yaf and their kind of methodology and, and the way they the approach that they took towards being anti-communist educators and this kind of thing. So anyway, this even-handed treatment of YAF from this author, you know, describes uh, the YAF guys as being very authoritarian in their their dealings and in their ideology, and and they weren't shy about it. And they the YAF guys allowed themselves to be kind of examined and surveyed by a group of sociologists that wanted to really just study them as, as a movement and as a phenomenon and get inside their heads. And um, the things that really stuck out was, was the tendency towards authoritarianism, which is odd for being, you know, for freedom, but you're actually authoritarian in your, in your ways. But one of the, the, the last part of that little paragraph described them as being highly susceptible to charismatic authority. <laughs> And I just, I'm like, yep, there it is, you know. Um, come on in, Mr. Moon, you know. Uh, I'll just leave it at that, but it's just a little color to add to some of the stuff that you're saying. You know, they not only, you know, you're you're getting right up to, you know, showing some hard linkages, but I'm just saying uh, in terms of sentiment and ideology and kind of the, the bedrock, uh, there's, there wasn't ever that much daylight to begin with between these these groups, so. There you go. Yeah, and you know, and, and obviously it's easy to talk about Moon when you're talking about the charismatic figure thing. I mean, that's what you need to to have a, a cult begin in the first place. But 
But you know, Buckley himself. Yeah. Logical, quote unquote, himself, you know, in terms of how these youngsters looked up to him. I mean, that that's how I I see it. So. So anyway, yeah. um, moving along here, I just wanted to mention one more thing about Salone in here uh, for now. I'm going to talk about him a little bit more later, but without a doubt. This guy is Salonen. He was the most important American Mooney, bar none. And now I want to segue a little bit towards getting ready for John. John's been really patient here. But he's even more significant than Gary Jarman, uh, a Mooney that would eventually become a Council of National Policy member. Um, even Jarman. Uh, you know, he, he didn't really come close to having the influence that Salonen had in the anti-communist work of the Moonies proper. Maybe I should give Jarman maybe a little bit more credit, but, but you know, since he was an official member of CNP, I mean, Salonen never made that list, was never a CNP member. But anyway, I think I've made my point about how crucial Salonen's influence was in the totality of of what the Moon organization was was all about. So anyway, getting back to 1958 one more time. So we've got YAF founder Douglas Caddy and a future villain of Koreagate, Tung Sung Park, establishing an anti-communist group on the campus of Georgetown University, where Lev Dobriansky is the top anti-communist faculty member, okay, and he'll become a top advisor for YAF. So this is all happening at the same time that Moon's organization is starting to ramp up its anti-communist influence on Korean campuses, you know, over there in Korea, right? Now, remember how I spoke earlier about how Moon's front group, that first front group, Sungwa Christian Student Association, that I'm connecting over to APACL, was bringing its anti-communist curriculum into all the primary levels of education that all starting you know around the end of 1955-56 well once we get to 1958 a number of these students who have been educated by moon's ideology in high school they now have graduated and they're now attending university so what does that mean well the simple rationale should tell us that that very same mooney influenced high school graduate or these high school graduates that, that took this curriculum, once they start attending college, they're gonna start bringing Moon's anti-communist thought onto the campus. I mean, it's all pretty logical. I mean, as far as I can see it. And, and, and lest we forget, it was Korea's universities that was the main target in the first place. The, the goal of Moon's organization from the very beginning right after David Kim helped Moon get his official start there in 54, the focus right from the start was to train, uh, train college students, train them to become avid anti-communists. That was the goal, plain and simple. And for those who think, and I know we've been talking a little bit about the cult aspect of things, but for those who think that I might be downplaying the pseudo-religious cult aspect of Moon's operation, at that time or otherwise, I, I'm really not. There is plenty to talk about as we have to some degree already 
to be concerned about when you analyze Moon's cult personality, etc. I just I just want to make it really, really clear here that it's the anti-communist nature of Moon's beginnings. This is the real reason why Moon's organization got off the ground. Moon was sponsored early as a vital Cold War intelligent asset. And the organization was ultimately supposed to, to work as a cutout. Okay, the great Daniel Junis, whose book on the Moon organization got suppressed, talked about this cutout principle in the summary of his book that I had the great fortune of finding on the internet. That's as far as it got. He got his summary out of the book, but the book never saw the light of day. Anyway, I just want to, and also since we're on the on the cult aspect of things, I, I just want to digress here just for a second. So please indulge me here. I, I think you guys will appreciate what I'm about to say. I want to briefly explain why Moon's group wasn't able to effectively infiltrate Korea's universities at the beginning, meaning that 1954-55 time. Because actually things were going quite well as the narrative goes from the time the Sungwa Christian Student Association got established in 54. Moon was sending recruiters to, to AY University and the Chosun Christian College campuses. Uh, Young Un Kim and Wan Pak Che hooked up with Moon. Okay, four other professors and 16 students would, would join as well. But then something happened in 1955. A big scandal took place where Sun Myung Moon was right at the center of it. We're talking Moon having sexual rituals with female co college students here. And it seems the great majority of these women did not appreciate Moon's sexual theology and how Moon's penis got involved. And <laughs> yeah, sorry. And needless to say, those students didn't join Moon's church. Now, as a result of Moon's overactive libido, the, the Korean newspapers jumped all over this thing. And by the time all was said and done, Moon and his group were no longer welcome on the campuses of either AY University or Chosun Christian College. Moon's people were officially banned. And those students and professors, Young Un Kim, Wan Pak Che included, who joined Moon, they were told that they either had to resign or drop out. That's the story or narrative here. Now, I've studied this Moon sex scandal as much as anyone. And I'm going to tell you guys right here that there are many questions that still need to be answered about what actually happened during that time. And especially when looking at all the court proceedings that Moon was supposed to have been involved with in accordance with the scandal. But here's the point I wanna make. Even though these female university students were total victims, and even though Moon's operation was banned at these two universities, was banned at these two universities, where the where the deans of both these universities remember 
are both vice chairmen of the Korean chapter of APACL, okay? Yep. Once again, we're talking Helen Kim and George Peck here. So even though this is all true, we can't just assume that these two deans, we shouldn't allow ourselves to come to the conclusion that George and Helen are against everything that Moon is doing. I think that would be a grave mistake here. These two deans, and this is my informed speculation here, these two APACL associated deans, Helen Kim and George Peck, were only making a statement about the sexual deviancy of Moon. Nothing more. And I believe that when we step back and look at the entire picture here, what took place during that scandal was only a temporary setback to the Moon organization and APACL's work in Korea. That's my conclusion here, and I'm pretty confident that I'm on target. And that's what I wanted to say with my digression here. Okay, so thanks for indulging me, guys, you know, with all that, because I think it's, I think it's important stuff. Yeah, no, yeah, it's no, definitely, definitely a very, very interesting, interesting digression. digression. All right, so. All right, so. Well, and, and, just, and just one more thing, just to conclude this. I, I'm almost done with this answer, Recluse. So getting back to Douglas and Caddy, D- Douglas, Caddy, and Tung Sung Park one last time. So, go, so to review 1958 once again, we have the beginnings of a Korean student anti-communist activity in the U.S. that is running parallel with Moon's growing anti-communist student activity in Korea. Now, it's a given that there's still some, shall we say, lingering effects from the sex scandal. But suffice it to say, Moon's organization is definitely moving forward. And APACL is most surely behind the scenes somewhere. They've got to be working with Moon some way, somehow. Yes, it's speculative. Yes, I'm theorizing. And, and I've said it before. We just don't have the hard documents. But anyway, we certainly have enough data to go on to create a picture that will lead us to where we want to go with our analysis of the early moon years during that Sigmund Re period. I really think we've got that. So I could go on and on about the Young Americans for Freedom and the Moon Organization, how they would overlap. Keith has already touched on that, you know, to a great degree just a few moments ago. You know, people like Lee Edwards, you know, Walter Judd, Dobriansky, Vigory. I'm going to talk about Vigory here in a bit. But all those guys, all those guys you just listed were on the letterhead of the first U.S. Wackle chapter, American Council for World Freedom. And so was Neil Salonen. Right, right, exactly. That's 10 years after YAF starts. They start their Wackle chapter and... The Moonies are present at the creation, not just any Mooney, but Salonen himself. Right, right, absolutely. So to finish my long-ass answer to, <laughs> to your question, Recluse, I think it's vital that we consider the greater meaning of what took place there in 1958. Did the Buckley Network know about Moon's anti-communist activities in Korea during the late 1950s? We certainly know that Buckley's network knew about Tung Sung Park's anti-communist activities. And, and was Tung Sung Park and the Moon organization already connected by that time in some way? 
And maybe the biggest question of all is, was the Buckley Network pulling strings from behind the scenes that enabled MRA-influenced Young Un Kim to get her visa to come to the U.S. in 1958? What I have found out about that is that Young Un Kim's visa process was very much orchestrated by David Kim. Once again, David Kim. He was the one that helped get Young Un Kim's visa approved, which then leads me to, I guess, my last question, which is, was David Kim himself connected to the Buckley Network in some way? I know that's a lot of questions with, with no definite answers. However, I hope I've created a plausible or, or an extremely plausible scenario here that the Buckley Network was somehow involved in getting Young Un Kim to the United States in 1958. So with that as a roller coaster ride of an answer, I'm throwing it back to you, Recluse. Thanks for your patience. Oh, no worries. Okay, Don, um, now you've been kind of alluding to it here a little bit, but could you give us a brief overview of Korea Gate? Uh, what were the connections the Moonies had to it? Because you almost inevitably have got to talk about Korea Gate when you're talking Moonies. Well, yeah. Um, okay, so ba basically, I think I can handle this as a short answer. I, I'll give it a go. So I touched on earlier and how the Moon Organization, especially Bohee Park and Tungsung Park, were at the center of Koreagate. Now, in the case of Moon and his organization, Koreagate got involved with things like the manufacturing of guns and arms on behalf of the Korean government. By the way, I think uh, Keith touched on this. One of Moon's sons today runs a fairly large gun manufacturing outfit right here in the United States, you know, called Car Arms. And his younger brother, which I don't think Keith would know about, his younger brother is the leader of a Moon organization schism. He's a religious leader in his own right. And Moon's son is a member of, or both these guys are a member of the patriot movement with all the second amendment you know things that go along with that as you can imagine as jesus would have wanted as jesus would have wanted thank you and by the <laughs> way the moon, the moon sun has a book that kind of brings all that up too about jesus anyway that's for another day so getting back to korea gate another significant aspect of it was that a few members of the Unification Church, most notably Bohi Pak and Neil Salonen, owned a controlling interest in the Washington, D.C. bank called Diplomat National Bank, where it certainly appears that there was a money laundering aspect to that. Um, even Jack Anderson, the well-known columnist for the Washington Post, even he was involved with, with Moon's people at this bank which raises all sorts of questions, actually. Oh, I mean, it's just a real head-scratcher. And, and, here, and here's, here's a real interesting aspect of this diplomat national thing. When Neil Salonen was questioned by Koreagate investigators in a private session about his connection with Diplomat National Bank, Salonen had to hire a high-profile lawyer by the name of Richard Benveniste. This guy, he not only was involved with Watergate, meaning a Watergate lawyer, but by the 1980s, he became the official counsel for 
wait for it. You're absolutely going to fall out of your chairs for this one. This guy became the official counsel for none other than Barry Seal, the infamous CIA drug trafficking pilot who had learned to fly with David Ferry of JFK conspiracy fame and who furthermore had the phone number of President Herbert George Herbert Walker Bush in his pocket the day he got whacked. And he was also uh, an ordained bishop by uh, one Carl Maria Stanley, who had also been a bishop in the same church we had talked to about, uh, talked about earlier, the American Orthodox Catholic Church, uh, overseen by a certain Walter Profeta. Holy crap. David Ferry, David Ferry, not Barry Seal, right? Yes, David Ferry was the bishop, though who knows? I mean, it's it would, <laughs> at this point in time, I would hardly be shocked if Barry Seal was an ordained <laughs> bishop, too. I mean, it right. kind of seems like that was the thing all the cool kids were doing. Right. I don't know about you guys, but I don't think Neil Salonen would want to have been associated with a lawyer that had a client like that. Uh, but that's But that's just me. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Oh, so write themselves. So, yeah. So anyway, you just can't make these things up. All right. So getting back to Watergate, the probably the most mainline thing that the Fraser Committee brought out in all these moon uh, organization uh, allegations or whatever was also the exact same thing that Tung Sum Park was was being nailed for. Okay, that these Koreans were illegally working as foreign agents for the South Korean government. But then probably the worst thing of all that came out, I think, was that Bohi Pak was accused of being a KCIA operative, which, of course, he was. Okay. Now, there are other aspects or details when it comes to the Moon Organization and Koreagate. In fact, I have basically gone through the entire archive of this investigation and there is so much to sink your teeth into, but suffice it to say, when we look at the Korean CIA and its relationship to the Unification Church historically, I think what's most important about Koreagate, uh, especially to an ex-Mooney like me, is that it totally exposes the Unification Church-KCIA relationship. This relationship was vehemently denied every step of the way by the likes of Moon, Bohi Pak, Neil Salonen, or anybody else speaking as a Mooney leader. Simply put, the Moon organization leaders said to people like me, the faithful, low-level followers of Moon, what they said to us wasn't worth a hill of beans. We were told that it was all about freedom of religion, that Donald Fraser was attacking our freedom of religion rights. Moon, Pak, Salonen, the whole lot of them. They all lied through their bloody teeth. They yeah, kept when, when, Go ahead. When Moon got when Moon got prosecuted and had to stand trial in uh, for tax fraud or whatever in in eighty one, I think it was. He stood there and said, "You know, if I had white skin and I was a Presbyterian, I wouldn't be standing here right now. It's because I'm yellow skinned and I am a follower of Unification Church. That's you know that's why I'm being persecuted. You know, right? They get the ACLU on his side and everybody. You know, it's just amazing. Just like yes, you're." You're being persecuted because of your religion, not the bribery and the buying up congressmen and the, the weird shenanigans at Georgetown and the taking of a generation of youth and turning them into 
robots, you know, with smiles plastered over their faces with saying, help me behind their gritted teeth. You know, no, it's it's all just it's they're just a religious witch hunt. That's all it is, you know. Right. It's, right. It's amazingly brazen. Um, and this is that that thing where you use the the uh, the government or the the government of the United States and it's uh, it's it's sacred Bill of Rights and the First Amendment and freedom of religion as a weapon against, you know, the long game against those very freedoms. Right. And say you're right. doing it for freedom. <laughs> yeah, I tried to okay. read 1984, but it was too Orwellian and I couldn't get through it, you know. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, I mean, they just kept telling they just kept telling us you know that the Unification Church had nothing to do with the Korean government, much less the KCIA. I mean, I mean, crap. All you have to do is go to the Unification Church archives now where these early Mooney publications can be seen. And it's right there in black and white that a Mooney contingent visited the CIA. I mean, I mean, really? Okay, yeah. I feel now that, comes- it do- now that it doesn't matter anymore, none of it is denied. Right? right. We we got away with it. So we can just uh, I can't believe some of the most damning stuff about the, the whole operation is to be found on tparents.org. It's it's their own <laughs> I know own website. They're just like, here it is. It's too late to do anything about it, but here it is. If you want to check the history, we'll we'll tell you. I know it's it's nuts at the yeah. end of the day. tparents.org, which for those who wouldn't get it. That means true parents. True parents means Moon completing the mission that Jesus didn't fulfill, meaning he became and his wife became the true parents of mankind. Okay? So that's what tparents.org means. Okay? Yeah, Yeah, unless you look at that website and you see all that stuff out there, some of which is pretty damning, you you get the sense that maybe – you know, one of those divine principles uh, is has to do with the statute of limitations. <laughs> I mean, you know? who knows? And and by the way, one the next thing I was going to say is that one of those publications that you can find on tparents.org, okay, the one that I just said mentioned that KCIA visit, right, by the Mooney contingent. Well. Our dear friend, Miss MRA herself, Youngun Kim, we find out that she is the one responsible right there for recruiting and educating three Korean Moonies that would all become KCIA operatives. And yes, one of the three was Bohee Pak and Steve Kim. I've already talked about him at nauseum, okay? You know, all of his connections that, you know, that I ventured off into from the Tung Sung Park article reference. Okay, he's one of the three. Uh, And then and then you've got a third guy by the name of Bud Han, who I haven't mentioned yet. He becomes a translator for the South Korean uh, government president, Chung Hee Park, to go along with his KCIA duties. So, excuse me, Young Eun Kim, if you can hear me. Nice work. I've got to hand it to you. Okay. Anyway, I better stop. I'm, I've, I, I just, I've ranted so much about Young Un Kim over the years with my fellow ex-Mooney buddy. It, it's just, 
I'm not, I'm not going to do it here. Okay, I promise. So, Recluse, that's your answer. Again, was that was that good enough? Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. All right, All right so, yeah, go ahead. All right, so... We're on, we're on the home stretch now. Okay, okay. All right, so what about uh, Richard Vigory then? I mean, he is an interesting figure with ties to the Moonies and the next group that we're going to be getting into. So what's your uh, your quick rundown of the Vigories and his ties to the Moonies, Don? Okay, well, with Richard Vigory, we, we got to go back in time here. Uh, we're going to go back to 1965 now. So to set the scene... Uh, in 65, that's the year that Sun Young Moon would come to the United States for the first time. And, <clears throat> excuse me, as a bit of a digression, once again, this is an important digression. The, the most significant thing that I think occurred during that trip was that Sun Young Moon, an already married man as of 1960, now it does get a little complicated here, but, but follow along with me. Moon had a secret wedding in 1964. So he's committing bigamy here. And Young Un Kim, remember, she's supposed to be in the States at this point. She flies back to Korea in 1964 and almost surely attended the secret wedding ceremony. So shortly after Moon's marriage to this woman, we're still in 1964, this second wife of Moon goes to the U.S. to study at Georgetown University. Yes, Georgetown University again, where Dobriansky is. And anyway, as I said a few moments ago, Moon went to the United States in 65, and while he's there, he hooks up with this woman. Her name is Annie Che, by the way. So Moon visits Annie Che at the home of Bohee Park and impregnates her. She was actually living under the care of Bokenkot's family at the time. Now, obviously, this is a big deal for an ex-Mooney like me. We've got a pattern now with Moon's sexual escapades or whatever. So, so guess what? Annie Che's son, okay, this is Moon's son, was raised as a son of Bohi Pak. In other words, Annie was required by Moon to give the boy to Bohipak and his family. This boy was raised by Bohipak as a so-called son of Bohipak. So this love child of Moon being raised by Bohipak's family, this was kept as a secret from all of the American Moon. I mean, we're talking a secret for years and years, decades and decades. I, gu I guess Moon and Pac thought they could keep it a secret forever. I don't know. But anyway, after decades of secrecy, the secret finally came out in a really big way. And for many, like myself, it was this revelation of Moon's past that was the breaking point that caused many a Mooney to drift away or just plain leave the cult. Hmm. By the way, a few years ago, Sam, Pock, okay, he should be called Sam Moon, but anyway, Sam Pock finally came out and told his entire story in a public forum. It was just more icing on the cake for me 
So because of this story I'm sharing, this allowed me after 36 years of being a Mooney to liberate myself from the hold of Sun Myung Moon, the hold he had over me. And I haven't looked back ever since. So thanks for your patience, guys, because I really feel I needed to share this here. You know. No, that was Thank great. Thank you very much. Bravo. You. Bravo. <laughs> all right. Well, Mr. Okay, Brisson. so all right, okay. so so I just got I gotta finish with Vigory then. So okay. so getting back to Vigory in sixty-five, the second most important thing that happened when Moon came to the US, I think it is most definitely his meeting with former President Eisenhower. Now we really don't know for sure who facilitated this meeting. Could the Buckley Network have been involved? It's as good an answer as any. The reason I say that is because Vigory, who is who is in deep with the Buckley Network, as we've talked about, Victory Vigory got a job in '65 working for Bohe Pox KCFF, which where Vigory is working his magic, employing his direct mail and fundraising strategies. So it's only speculation on my part that Vigory YAF or the Buckley Network had something to do with setting up this Eisenhower meeting with Moon and Pock. It's just as likely that Chung Hee Park, the Chung Hee Park KCIA network, had a hand in getting Eisen getting to Eisenhower on behalf of Moon. And there are a couple of other possibilities as well that I'm not going to get into here, but who knows? That'll be for another day. So now getting now coming coming to the real home stretch here, so we can get to John, who's been more than patient here. I want to talk about the only Mooney I'm aware of that became a member of the Council of National Policy. And that guy is Gary Jarman. And let me just say here, I'm fairly sure that Richard Vigory had something to do with that CNP appointment. And I also think it's quite probable that Vigory would have had would have been very instrumental in the rise of Gary Jarman or a new Christian right leader. Um, I say I that agree. because and, and Tim, and Tim oh, Go ahead, John. Tim go ahead, John. I was, I was going to say Tim LaHaye too, as well. Uh, Don, who was in, you know, was a founding member of uh, the CMP, among many other people. He would have been instrumental in Jarman um, joining, you know, as well too. So. Right. No. No. It's it's a good point. And you know, Bohe Pop was guiding and instructing Gary Jarman in those early Mooney years. You know, guiding him pretty much every step in a way. I mean, obviously, Salonen had his influence on Jarman as well, but it's really Bohe Pak that we need to focus on since Pak and Vigory started their relationship in 65, a relationship that would continue through the 70s and beyond. So what I'm really trying to say here, as uh, far as Vigory and Jarman goes, is that it's quite probable that Vigory, as we're kind of already saying here, was keeping a very close eye on Gary and his development and was probably helping him all, he's, all he could. So let me just talk briefly about Gary Jarman and his early years and then the key moment that led him to go undercover, which then leads to his CNP appointment, etc. So Gary Jarman joined the Unification Church or the Unified Family as it was known back then. Gary joined in 1967, which is ex the exact same year Salonen joined. And interestingly enough, Jarman was a troubled high schooler. 
it appears that he had to enter some kind of rehabilitation center. And then right at that time that he's at this rehabilitation place, a Mooney leader by the name of John Schuhart and his wife, they find Jarman, Jarman at this place and end up becoming the legal guardian of Jarman. That's how Gary becomes a Mooney. This is truly one of the unique early Mooney stories. So moving ahead here, it doesn't take very long before Gary Jarman is starting to get a real good feel for the anti-communist thought taught by Bohi Pak. And by 1969, when Neil Salonen establishes the FLF, Jarman is one of the select few to work with Salonen. And if we jump further ahead to the spring of 73, Gary is now second in command directly under Salonen. Now, this is where the turning point for Jarman takes place. Now we're talking early 1974. Jarman has been asked to participate and help lead a weekend Mooney indoctrination session. Okay, not, a, not an anti-communist thing at all. Okay, the true blue Mooney, you know, recruiting deal. Okay, but among the recruits that are at this site where they're holding this, there's this guy that's not really a searcher looking for a new truth or anything. He actually knows a lot about the Moonies already, but what he wants to find out is he wants to find out more about the hidden political side of the Moonies. And just as an aside, but it's very important here, in those very early Mooney years, the anti-communist thing wasn't emphasized at all in the beginning of the recruitment process. The anti-communist nature of Moon's work didn't get introduced until the timing was just right, so to speak. The different aspects of the cult got integrated uh, incrementally, say. The American Mooney operation learned very early on that introducing things that had any political nature or slant to them was ultimately going to backfire. In fact, the Mooney's most successful U.S. recruiting outfit or operation had what I believe to be a MRA-trained or MRA-influenced leader, an ethnic Korean that was living in Japan along with our alleged MRA man, Song Ik Che, that I talked about in the previous podcast and a little bit today. Anyway, it seems really clear to me that she brought an MRA-influenced recruiting strategy into the U.S. that ultimately became the most successful recruiting strategy in America by far, okay? So now getting back to Jarman here, what happened? This guy who's investigating the Mooney indoctrination place for his own purposes, as I was saying, his name was John Marks, and that's pretty eye-opening because Marks is not just any old independent researcher, okay? or any, any just regular old guy wanting to know about Moon's anti-communist work. He's the guy that teamed up with former CIA agent Victor Marchetti. They co-authored the book, The CIA and the Cult of Intelligence. Mark would also author another book, The Search for the Manchurian Candidate. Wow. So finishing up here, Marx pretends to be a potential recruit, starts talking with Jarman, about their recruitment strategies in a very unassuming, a very unassuming way we could only imagine. 
Marx finds out from Jarman how the anti-communist aspect of the Mooney indoctrination process doesn't come along until the recruit is ready for it, things like that. Then John Marx goes back to his office after the weekend's over or whatever. He writes this amazing article revealing all the inside Mooney stuff that he had learned from Jarman. And then the next thing you know, Moonies that are close to Jarman or knew or who had knew who had known Jarman personally, these Moonies were told that Gary Jarman needed to go home to attend to some kind of family issue and that he would come right back. And that was almost never allowed in the early days for fear that Moonies would never come back to the fold. And then Gary, supposedly, never does come back. He's gone. He's not a Mooney anymore. End of story. Well, as I'm sure you guys have guessed by now, that is not the end of the story. It is kind of where the story begins, actually. So my informed speculation of what happened to Jarman is this. Once Bohepoch and possibly Moon found out what Jarman had told John Marks, and when Pock read Marks' article and realized the potential fallout from what Marks had written, I think Bohe Pock made an executive decision. I don't think he had to tell Moon. So I think Pock told Gary that it would be better that he left the Moonies officially and go to another group within the Buckley Network. And that's exactly what happened. By the end of 1974, Jarman found himself working at the American Conservative Union, and that was that. Now, as far as I've seen, Russ Ballant, in his book on the Coors family, I believe, he is the only independent researcher that was privy or knew that Gary Jarman had somehow left the Unification Church proper in 1974 and knew that he also had gone to the ACU. And it's important to mention here that there were there was a huge YA affluence at the ACU. Uh, a number of YAFers were there. So, to finally complete my theory on Vigory and Jarman, it's my contention that when Gary Jarman, in essence, went underground or undercover for the Unification Church, it would have been Richard Vigory right there, right in the thick of things, making sure that Jarman's transition went smoothly. And then to finish up, Jarman by the late 1970s would help found with Robert Grant, the Christian voice, which had its offices inside the Heritage Foundation building, which certainly should tell us something, as John would know. And Robert Grant, just like Jarman, became a Council of National Policy member as well. And with that, I think I'm finally done. Thanks, guys, for all this time. Thank well, you, that Don. was great, Don. Yeah, thank you very much, yes. man. All right, John, are you ready? I am ready. I'll All right. Anyway. <laughs> okay. 
All right, so we're going to link the Moonies to an outfit that you are very passionate about and which will further illustrate why this group still matters. So the ties that you're going to focus on are the ones between the Moonies and the Council for National Policy, or CMP. We've been alluding to it, obviously, throughout here. Uh, Don just did a great uh, segue into this. But now I wanted uh, you to get your take on the beginning of the relationship, John. Yeah, um, so there were many, many members, uh, and we're going to talk about a lot of them. Uh, we've already talked about uh, a new a lot of them who have associations with the Unification Church and the Reverend Sung Mung Moon. Um, there are so many uh, that you cannot separate the two, even if you wanted to, because there's just too many connections. You know, this isn't six or seven degrees of Kevin Bacon. You know, this is like one multiple one degrees of Kevin Bacon, right? So there's so many connections. You know, with members and funding and and platform boosting of, of, of both sides, uh, that it's almost in, inescapable. And, you know, when the CMP was founded initially in 1981, there were numerous uh, members that were there at the initial um, meeting on May the 19th, like Tim LaHaye. Richard Vigory, who Don mentioned earlier and gave us a lot of insight between Vigory's connections and the, to the Unification Church. Um, Jerry Falwell, James Robinson, Dr. Cleon Skousen, mm. all of those people were at that, that first meeting have direct ties to the Unification Church, which I'm going to get into a little bit later. But even from its inception, the two were very strongly linked together. All right, so were the Moonies providing uh, the CMP with early funding as well, John? Yes, they were. Um, supposedly, Tim LaHaye received $500,000 from Bohee Pack. Um, to help start the Council for National Policy in 1981. Now, you can look on any membership list. We don't have them all, okay? Um, and I'm going to discuss more about that later. Uh, but the Reverend Sun Mung Moon obviously isn't on any CNP list. But when you have these connections between all the members that were in around or even part of the Unification Church, that were CMP members, and when you get to that part, you start to realize that they were initial, even more than just funding, they were initial in the foundation. You know, Moon was initial in the foundation of the Council for National Policy. You can even argue that without the Reverend Sung Mo Moon, without the Unification Church, um, the CMP would have not been able to get its proper uh, footing. Uh, to be able to establish itself. Now, there were other people who helped to fund the CMP um, that we know of, like the Coors family, the Rockefellers, um, the Cokes, but still very few people talk about Moon's funding, about Moon having a very strong relationship with Tim LaHaye, um, who, you know, was at least the figurehead 
or the one that they push forward as the founder of the Council for National Policy. Of course, Tim LaHaye uh, would be the author for the Left Behind series uh, of novels and be a very strong pro proponent for uh, Christian Zionism. And so uh, LaHaye never denied the charge um, that, or the allegation, should I say, that he got the money from uh, Bohe Pak from uh, Sung Mung Moon, but he there is a tape where LaHaye thanked Pak for the five hundred thousand dollars. So hmm. they definitely ended up getting you know that money to help fund um, the Council for National Policy. Of course, Tim LaHaye would later go on to serve on the board of directors of the Christian Voice. Um, and then later for another organization, um, the Council for Religious Freedom. So again, you're going to see connections between all these players within the CMP and within the Unification Church. They go hand in hand, um, you know, with one another. It's they would both, and it's it's interesting because you would think the Council for National Policy would be such a, a Christian conservative organization right like why would they throw their lot in with the unification church when you know the reverend moon had mentioned that jesus christ had you know failed his mission uh because he was quote unquote executed and um that you know it was going to be his mission as the new messiah to unite the, the world uh through uniting you know all religions so it's very interesting that the CMP, with all of these evangelical Christians, you'd think that they would reject that, right? Well, they're able not to reject that because they'll overlook that part. They'll overlook the blasphemy for power and for money, as well as, you know, governmental ties. You know, the, the Unification Church having uh, connections to the Korean Central Intelligence Agency which has its own, you know, connections to the United States Central Intelligence Agency. So in right. the CMP itself, the CMP has, you know, numerous connections to the Central Intelligence Agency. Um, very powerful people within the CMP are Scientologists or Mormons. You kind of see uh, the Scientology Mormon Unification Church nexus kind of like uh, forming around each other, right? And we'll talk more about that later when we talk about W. Cleon Skousen. Um, but you just you know you start seeing the same players over and over again when you're researching all this stuff and as keith allen dennis has, has said it's very hidden you know i i remember i i had uh woken up to conspiracies for lack of a better term uh 2008 when i heard alex jones on coast to coast am uh talk about how 9 11 was an inside job but i didn't hear about the council for national policy until uh, a good friend of mine, uh, in fact, my best friend, uh, recommended me watch The Secret Right. They heard somebody um, mention on a message board of why we shouldn't trust Donald Trump during the 2016 election. And I watched it. I remember, you know, just laughing and off and like, man, I would have well, I've, I've been around forever. I've heard the Council of Relations, the Trilateral Commission, the Bilderberg Group, um, you know, all, all of all the councils you know that you can think of, you know, and I man, I, I would have heard about the CMP by now. What are you talking about? And I hadn't watched the second movie that really goes into well, Alex Jones is a member of the CMP, <laughs> you know. Um, so yeah, I mean, a lot of this stuff is hidden. You won't, you know, hear a lot about the CMP, and you won't hear a lot about uh, the Unification Church because they're tied in the hip to one another. Okay, yep. 
Yep, that, that is uh, definitely great. All right. Um, so another guy that we've uh, heard a little bit before already, uh, Jerry Falwell, and of course his moral majority. There's also some interesting ties in this whole nexus that you're talking about, John, right? Yeah. Uh, so Jerry Falwell, uh, I mean, just readily admitted he didn't care. Uh, they accepted $2.5 million uh, from a moon in 1994 to bail out uh, Liberty University in uh, Lynchburg, uh, Virginia. And uh, the bailout was funneled through a, a, a unification church organization known as uh, the Women's Federation for World Peace, which was also uh, chaired by a CNP founding uh, member, uh, Tim LaHaye's wife, Beverly LaHaye, which was also in the CNP as well. Uh, the Women's Foundation Federation for World Peace uh, also uh, ended up paying $3.5 million to the Christian Heritage Foundation. Uh, which in turn bought uh, Jerry Falwell $73 million in debt and then wrote it off. <laughs> so, yeah, Fal- Falwell had no problem getting in bed with the Unification Church. Um, but it was even before then. I mean, we're going to talk about uh, uh, the God and Freedom Banquet, you know, and, and, and the very interesting, you know, about that is Falwell was defending. Um, the unification church then you know so it 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 just happened to be during the 90s that he needed money and he either went to moon or moon came to him and uh said you know we'll we'll buy you out and there's a a good picture of um his article interreligious federation for world peace where um it was december 1995 in a private meeting in uruguay uh, uh, Moon is just bear hugging Jerry Falwell like he loves him, just bear hugging him, and just this you know crap eating grin on on Moon's face, you know, and, and Falwell's just laughing. And uh, yeah, I guess he had no problem as a big you know evangelical Christian uh, taking this um, false messiah, this false prophet's money. Oh and yeah, it's sickening to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially when uh, we're going to get into in the uh, the next installment in this series where exactly a lot of that money was probably coming from in the first place, which uh, puts it even further taint on it beyond the fact that it was being administered by a creepy cult leader. Uh, but what about this God and Freedom Banquet that you've been alluding to, John? Okay, I got a lot about this. And I watched it again last night, and oh boy. I don't know how I could stomach it. I feel like I was going to puke. Uh, it's that how much they fawn over Moon is ridiculous. They're in, it's not like you could say some of it is probably fake fawning for power or for money purposes, but a lot of it is is, is legit. Uh, some of them uh, see Moon as uh, the Messiah or a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Um, we'll get to more on that a little bit later. Uh, but it's really just, it's just, it's just, it's just a disgusting thing to watch. It made me, I could barely stomach it. Um, so the God and Freedom Banquet was held on August 20th, 1985, the Regency Ballroom, the Omni Shoreham Hotel, in Washington, D.C. Uh, Gary Jarman, who uh, Don had mentioned earlier, uh, uh, who was Council for National Policy member, helped organize the banquet. Even though before then at that time he said that he had really nothing to do with Unification Church anymore, which of course that's a lie. Um, so there's a press conference before the banquet 
uh, Jerry Falwell and Joseph Low, uh, Lowry, who uh, uh, Joseph Lowry was an African-American uh, civil rights leader. He was president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, spoke about um, how Reagan had been silent on pardoning uh, a moon. And uh, they were trying to put pressure on Reagan to do so because they believed that Moon was unjustly persecuted for his uh, tax evasion and conspiracy crimes that he was uh, serving jail time for, which, um, you know, the Unification Church was doing a lot more, you know, as all, all we know, you know, here uh, than just those two crimes, you know, but sometimes they get a person on whatever they can get them on. Um, but it was just, it just, I tried to find that press conference. I couldn't find it. Um, but again, like I said, I did find the, the God and Freedom Banquet. So apparent, supposedly there was um, 1,700 ministers, rabbis, government officials, power brokers, family members, etc., cetera, uh, that attended the banquet. So that is a lot of people. And the God of Freedom Banquet was an honor of Moon being released from prison. Now, at the time, he was still staying in a halfway house. Uh, it's contingent on his release. Um, but yes, it was for, um, him being released from prison and all these people were, uh, joyous in that occurring. And, uh, I remember watching it. And, uh, so, um, the, the, uh, MC was, uh, Dr. Donald, uh, Sills and Sills. I can't really find if he's in the CMP, but we don't have the roster for every year. And when I checked the 2014, Leaked membership list that was released by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, they do have it in memorandum, uh, in memoriam, so you're able to tell, you know, if some of the people that you didn't know previously on other lists were members or not. If all the members are listed in a in, in memoriam uh, section of the membership list, I checked to see if any of these people were that were unknown previously, if they were CMP members or not. I couldn't find it. So it's likely, in my opinion, that Dr. Donald uh, Sills was a C, you know, in the CMP, likely. I just don't have any concrete proof. Do uh, What about you guys? Don or, or, or Keith or Recluse, have you ever came across any list that had Dr. Donald Sills on a CMP? I got nothing. You're, you're the, you're the uh, expert on CMP. Okay. I'm, I'm more of yeah, an ancient history either. guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I don't have anything either, other other than a, a very interesting anecdote that I probably won't have time to share today, as it pertains <clears throat> to Donald Sills sitting next to two known CNP members. So so anyway, go ahead, John. Yeah, that wouldn't. Who 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 were they, Don? If you don't mind me asking. Uh, yeah, that particular event where they're basically the. Uh, the three, <laughs> the three guests of honor at a big gathering of, of all Moonies. Mm-hmm. Um, you had uh, Robert Grant, who I'd already yes. brought up. Uh, Gary Jarman had worked with him at the Christian Vo- Voice. And you had uh, Ron Godwin. And then, and then you have Don Sills. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure that... Donald Sills was a CMP member, but it's kind of like uh, my white my white well as far as the CMP list is. I'm trying to hunt down because it's my belief that um, Lawrence E. King from the Franklin scandal uh, was a member of the Council for National Policy. He would have had to have been, um, and so I'm trying to find those missing lists around the mid 
to late 1980s and see if I can find them on a list or not. Because I think that would be ground bear breaking if I was able to find that. But that's an aside. Um, so um, the speakers um, at the God and Freedom Break, actually, before I get to that, when I was watching it, they gave um, Moon this huge trophy. I mean, this trophy was huge. All right. In a uh, commemoration of him being released from prison. And then they also gave him like a, a Native American like sound drum. And uh, they were just giving him presents. Like you would give presents to like a king, you know, and um, I was like, that's OK, how he that, that's how he liked yeah. it, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you're a narcissist, and you're a cult leader yeah. like that, you know, that, that full praise. Right. So that was interesting. And then um, so the speaker started uh, speaking and I'm not going to really uh, probably go. Well, actually, I probably will go with them in that order. They speak. Well, at least I think I will. I think I will. Uh, so the first person who spoke was uh, Dr. Robert Grant, uh, who was on the CMP list 1984, 1985, 1988, 1994, 1998, and 1999. So he was there for a good at least that we know of 16 years within the Council for National Policy. That's a long time. Um, and, uh, of course you guys had talked a lot about, uh, a grant and I'll talk a little bit more about him when we discuss, uh, another group that he was in that had ties to unification church, uh, later. Uh, but I found that very interesting that he was in the CMP for so very long. So he gets up in the speech and like most of these people, and there's only going to be a few speeches that I talk about, um, just giving, all of them were giving, um, moon like the complete adoration that they can give him so much so that uh, Dr. Donald Sills keeps having to mention, you know, these people would, they wish they could have hours to go over their time to talk about how much they love the unification church and how much uh, the Reverend uh, Sung Mung Moon has been persecuted, you know, like hours and hours, but they only have 20 or 30 minutes, you know, to give their speeches. And it's, it's just, ugh. it's just sickening. So then you have um, Dr. Joseph Lowry, uh, who gave uh, was at the press conference earlier before the banquet? Um, the, he, he gives a speech, and then W. Cleon Skousen gives a speech, and then um, which I'm gonna of course with Skousen, uh, he was a founding member of the CMP. He was listed on the board of governors of the CMP in 1982. Um, you know, he was a former FBI agent. Uh, he was under um, I think he was like the number three man or number second man under uh, J. Edgar Hoover. Of course, a big Mormon. Uh, w. Cleon Skousen's nephews, Mark Skousen and Joel Skousen, would also be Council for National Policy members. Mark Skousen would influence more of your stereotypical conservative right, where uh, Joel Skousen, who would run um, kind of like a like a survival blog and website, would go more on your conspiracy shows like Alex Jones or Jeff Rents. And um, so Skousen uh, was up there, and so Skousen worked closely with uh, CA USA. And one of the main things he said uh, of Moon was that he believes um, Skousen believes that um, uh, that um, Moon, uh, you know, being Unification Church, being a part of you know the world, um, is a is is a is a fulfillment of Mormon prophecy regarding the premillennial preparation of the earth. He's like okay. the white horse. He's the guy on the white horse or something. Yeah, sure. Um, 
I don't think so. I would say more likely that Moon was closer to being a Antichrist, not the Antichrist, but well, the, whatever. The Mormons have this prophecy that when the, 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 the nation is hanging by a thread and its constitution is in great danger, that a, a man on a white horse, as they call it, yep. will... Yeah, you know about this. Okay. And that's, and that's how they were looking at it, Keith. Huh. You know, they were looking at it that... Um, moon was going to come and rescue us all and it's just like wow okay it was going to be romney but okay sure no instead uh Skousen <laughs> and the rest of them wanted it to be moon so right. we'll just take that as as it is i guess um and so um then i i they actually bef- something i think it was beforehand orin hatch's sister gets up all right now orin hatch of course spoke at many uh ca usa conferences and um um Orrin Hatch uh sister gets up and reads a letter just praising Moon. Just praising Moon that Orrin Hatch had written. I guess he couldn't have been there at the Freedom Banquet for some reason. Um mm-hmm. but he was just you know she was just giving so much adoration. And again, uh it's been mentioned through many uh publications that I've read uh to do research on both the Unification Church and the God and Freedom Banquet that um there were many many Mormons uh, that attended CAUSA conferences. Now, Don, did you see yourself a lot of personal connections between Mormons or Mormonism in the Unification Church, by chance? You know, there there was <clears throat> excuse me, there was nothing that was obvious. I guess yes. that's the best way of putting it. You know, other other than Skousen, I just can't think of of anybody that that has shown up on my radar that sticks out as being a significant figure in this conversation. I, I guess that's all I can say. Yeah, it wasn't big figures, but apparently at many of the Mooney functions, there were a lot of Mormons, at least from what I read. Um, I don't know how much that is true, but it's just from what I read that it was quite frankly that that occurred. Um, so the next speaker you had was Arnaud de Borchkov. Uh, he was listed as a member of the CMP in 1988. Of course, he's editor-in-chief from 1985 to 1991 of, of, of the Unification Church-owned Washington Times and Insight, too, as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's very board, interesting. Of he course, was on the board of the uh, the American Wackle chapter in the 80s, Singlobs, uh, U.S. CWF, U.S. Council for World Freedom. His name's on the he – was, he, was, uh, he was on the board of, of Wackle. In the 80s. Anyway, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. No, no, no. Interrupt any time. And, and he was um, he was also a member of the Council of Foreign Relations, too, so it's interesting. He was a member of both uh, think sure. tanks, but that happens quite often. It so, um, and then he um, also uh, was uh, a director of the uh, Center for uh, International Studies, which included um, other CMP members like Edward Fulner, Paul Craig Roberts, and William E. Simon, as well as Henry Kissinger was also part of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. So Bernard de Borchgrave, and some people have argued that, of course, you know, Paul Rodriguez uh, covered a lot of the um, Brownstone, Franklin, and, you know, Craig J. Spence, um, uh, even the Finders articles from the Washington Times, right? So some people might believe that Bernard de Borchgrave maybe didn't approve some of the things that supposedly Paul Rodriguez wanted to report 
uh, because Paul Rodriguez, I guess, hadn't realized, you know, per se, the Council for National Policy at the time and who blamed him it had only been really in um, published in Russ Ballant's book, The Course Connection. You know, it's not like it is now where, you know, you it might be easier to find the CNP or, that they exist now. But even now, most people have never heard of it. So um, that's very interesting that um, that's very interesting that um, some people say that um, it was Arnaud de Borchgrove that uh, kind of limited uh, Paul Rodriguez's reporting on all those scandals. And then, of course, Paul Rodriguez, after you know the early 90s, would be relegated to um, would be relegated to like, obscurity. He'd be he'd be forced to, you know, from be publishing uh, to Washington Times. To move to their magazine Insight, and then you know, kind of, you know, he had this great reporter breaking all these, th- you know, all this information, and then you know, just being pushed off to the side. Which I question Paul Rodriguez. Of course, he worked for the Washington Times. How truthful is a, a reporting could really be, you know? But I think just because they kind of pushed him off to the side and kind of put him off into into a relevancy, that kind of speaks for him. That speaks because usually when they do that, when they're kind of like, okay. You know, um, I'm just going to put you over here and your reporting is not going to get any traction anymore. Usually means a person's on, 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 on at least on the right page. From And I will say, you know, there is a, if you go back and read those articles, there's a lot of information that you can get from them. It's very interesting. Um, so, yeah. And then other um, the last speaker that you had was Dr. Milton A. Reed. Um, and of course, he said um, Moon was one of the most misunderstood religious leaders since Jesus Christ. Um, I have to, as a Christian, uh, very much disagree with that. And then, so uh, of course, Moon gives, you know, gets up and gives a speech and just gets, I mean, a very, very, very prolonged ovation. Even before he speaks, just when he gets up and then after he speaks and ovations during his speech. I mean, these people worship him. And then at the very end, um, everyone there received God's will in the world, a 38 speech anthology, um, that speeches of that, uh, moon had given. And, uh, that was the God and freedom banquet. Uh, I hope to never watch it again. Uh, have you ever watched it, Don, or, um, anything that you got to say on the God and freedom banquet? I'd be really curious. Well, funny, funny that you bring that up because it was a whole tour that moon was going on at that time i was stationed quote unquote in denver colorado at the time so these these illuminaries these vips you know that we're talking about here whether it be sills you know lowry uh whoever um you know definitely um orrin hatch etc they were actually traveling to different cities, putting on uh, different rallies. So we're not talking about a banquet here. So we're just talking about, you know, rallies. And rallies, generally speaking, would precede a bank banquet. Anytime Moon would come into a, a situation where he had to put on a, a function, as it were, usually you had the rally. And then the banquet comes after the rally. So I was right there, standing, cheering, waving at one of those rallies right there in Denver. I can remember almost like it was yesterday. 
So I guess that's my anecdote as far as this conversation goes. Well, was the, was the food at least good? Was the food at least good? <laughs> the food that I got? Yeah, he didn't go to the banquet. Yes. He went to the rally. Yeah. Ah, no, okay. you, you get oatmeal. <laughs> yeah, yeah th- thanks, Keith. Yeah, right. <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, maybe not oatmeal, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, not, point made. Not chicken or fish. Yeah, it's, it's uh, gruel. Correct. I certainly wasn't drink drinking the wine that was being served at the tables. So anyway, <laughs> I won't riff. All right. Uh, so, John, I know, there, I know there was uh, one final organization you wanted to get into here, uh, John, and that was uh, the American Conference on Religious Freedom uh, a Movement, I guess. Uh, what can you tell us about that? It's actually the American Coalition for Religious Freedom. Uh, right uh, okay. Um, mistake. So the American Coalition for Religious Freedom uh, was was started supposedly to lobby against government regulation of religion. All right, but later it, they became lobbyists mainly for the Unification Church. So it was founded by Tim LaHaye, of course CMP, Robert Grant CMP, George Hansen. I don't know if George Hansen was CMP or not. I tried to verify, but I couldn't find out if it was or not. And now the executive committee, you have many different CMP people. So you have Jerry Falwell. Uh, well, Falwell was on the board of governors of the CMP back in 1982. Uh, was likely a founding member. Was a member up to 1998. From you know, from what we know, of course, Jerry Falwell is also the president, co-founder of the Moral Majority. Um, so he, you know, he was on the executive committee of the Coalition for Religious Freedom. You have James Robinson, CMP. Rex Humbert, I couldn't tell if he was CMP. Dr. James Kennedy, CMP. Jimmy Swagger, I assume Swaggart, CMP. But I can't find him on any lists. Uh, Don Don Wildman, CMP, Paul Crouch, who founded the Trinity Broadcasting Network. I can't confirm that Paul was on any CMP list, but it's very likely that he was. Marlon uh, Maddox, CMP, and Ben Armstrong was a CMP member. So you have majority of these people being Council for National Policy members, long-term Council for National Policy members, and Likely, you know, even the ones that I can't tell are CMP, it's very likely that they are. Um, They're in the room, yeah. Yes, very much so, which you'll see with a lot of these people, even if you can't ver- verify them or not. So the Coalition um, for uh, Religious Freedom um, was supposedly started in the early 1980s, um, and um, Dan Sills... Um, who was uh, uh, president of the, the Coalition for Religious Freedom, uh, said that he received at least $500,000 from the Unification Church for the Coalition for Religious Freedom. And so it, were it going... makes sense. If I could just interject, early yes, 80s, this is when Moon is you know, looking at jail time for tax fraud and calling it religious persecution. So I can already see this as the... Uh, keep moon out of jail committee right you know very much is what it was <laughs> very much <laughs> perfect so you have them going around and lobbying you know trying to get moon out of jail and you know keep the unification church from coming under 
uh, governmental investigation. So they're going around, you know, they're, they're, they're probably, you know, I would say a lot of probably the talk of Moon and the Unification Church avoiding any type of persecution from the United States government. Would, I, would it be safe to say that a lot of that talk probably happened in Council for National Policy meetings? You tell me. I mean, it sounds, yeah, I sounds think like so. right there in the pocket. Yeah. I think so very much. I mean, just like we had, you know, uh, Colonel Oliver North going to CMP meetings, raising money for um, the Iran Contra affair to go uh, to 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 uh, circumvent the uh, Bolin Amendment. So, Which Moon's CAUSA also was big part of. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So prosecuting the Cold War in Latin America and circumventing the U.S. Congress. Um, I can see why they'd want to keep the guy out of jail. He was their domestic and foreign shadow foreign policy money maker money money bags so he's got to be free right yes very much so um don was there any what was um uh, the unification church's stance on taiwan i'm curious Ooh. well moon would talk about free china taiwan whatever uh, in some of his speeches, you know, l- looping, looping their work there with the anti-communist work that was taking place in Japan and Korea, there there wasn't a whole lot of that. And I think this is just me speculating here. I think that that Moon might have been kept on a short, <clears throat> excuse me, on a short leash in terms of him talking about the the triangulation shall we say between free china japan and korea because as keith would would well know that that triangulation is really what what made the uh world anti-communist league uh what it is uh in in the eyes of many so so there are talks about it as as the years progress like by the time moon is having his problems with his uh danbury imprisonment whatever he's not really going down that road at that point uh the it seems to me that the the whole taiwan china lobby facet of of how we link that into the moon organization I don't want to say that um, that the star is has lost its light completely, but it just isn't what it what it was when you're talking about the heyday, you know, in the 70s and what it and what would have got gotten brought into all that back then. So, yeah, uh, that it, just on, on that point, you know, the Marvin Liebman's uh, committee of, for, of one million to keep red china out of the un you know um liebman quit it in 69 and handed it over to lee edwards who himself shuttered it in 1971 once red china got into the un so it's like the whole purpose of a lot of that leftover remnant china lobby stuff it's it's all over but the grievance mongering by by the early 70s you know what i mean yeah fair point yeah yep there's nothing to talk about anymore other than a general, you know, bullet point on the list of anti-communist kind of talking points. 
free China would have to be in there, but it doesn't right. make you a, a lobbyist one. Yeah. So another way of looking at it, it was during the Nixon years that that would have been important with all that that the Moon Organization was involved in, in terms of its relationship with the Nixon administration, which that's that's a whole topic in unto itself, you know, for another time. But uh, anyway, yeah, nothing much once we once we're talking up the timeline, John. Yeah, Don, that's interesting because I always the CMP was you know I'm no fan of the Communist Party of China, but I still always find it very interesting that um, the Council for National Policy was adamant in discussing uh, Taiwan, uh, uh, even still today. You know, you'll hear their pundits um, discuss it. So I was just curious what well, you know. I would assume you know Moon's stance would be to, you know towing that same line. But I was still just curious. Um, and I guess one last thing is is on the um, Coalition for Religious Freedom, just as much as they would uh, cheerlead for the Unification Church uh, during the 1980s and 1990s, they would later uh, cheerlead, cheerlead extensively for Scientology. And of course, there Scientology has nexus, yeah. a very strong nexus with the Truth Movement and the John Birch Society and the Council for National Policy. And uh, the Trump administration, so it does not surprise me at all that they would be shilling for Scientology just like they were shilling for the Unification Church. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Remember what uh, Copeland said: the Scientology would hit him low, and MRA hit him high, or maybe I had that backwards. No, no, you had had it right the first time. (laughs) (laughs) They're gonna hit him. It doesn't surprise me at all. So, yeah, usually the was there. I guess one last thing, Don. Was there any connections? And this is my own personal question, but it it was any connections to Scientology and the Unification Church that you're aware of? There, there was in that that operation that I mentioned to you earlier, where I'm alleging that there was an MRA trained or MRA influenced ethnic Korean that was living in Japan at the time that the whole Japan unification church operation was just getting its start. I mean, just, just to review quickly, Song Ik Che, he goes to Japan in 1958. And I have, I have it from this one book that this lady that I'm referring to, her name is Yunsu Lim. Uh, she eventually takes on the name Oni Durst, Durst being the, the name of her Jewish American husband, whose, whose name was Mose Durst. Durst actually ended up taking over the presidency of the Unification Church from Neil Salonen in 1980. But anyway, get, getting back to your, your question more specifically, then, you know, this this lady in the early 70s when the operation in Oakland, California, or just call it the whole Bay Area, I, I think is 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 much more uh, correct. That that Bay Area operation, uh, the the top people next to this uh, Oni Durst lady, Korean lady, they were they were having meetings all the time with with Scientologists, uh, trying trying to figure out okay how can we get the 
the deprogrammers, you know, neutralized? Um, how can we be able to, you know, have a, a better uh, public relations program? Uh, things of this nature. Uh, def- definitely that was going on uh, during the early 70s. There's, there's no doubt. All right, guys. Well, um, is there anything else anybody wants to add here uh, before we wrap up? All right, I take it then. I think you guys, uh, we've covered everything. Can, well, I hope yeah, so anyway. I, There's probably so something? much stuff to cover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Before we get off. Def- Go ahead, was, man. I'm uh, sorry. Oh, it was fine. Uh, it was definitely pretty epic, but, you know, I definitely think that uh, we did a great job at covering everything here, and uh, this will hopefully be a new farm classic. <laughs> All right, well, gentlemen, I want to thank everybody so much for joining me here today. Uh, this is obviously a very important topic and one that is still profoundly influential to this very day. And with that, I am going to sign off for now. Good night and good luck to everyone. And again, thank you guys so much for listening. We're going to be back with another Wackle installment, hopefully uh, soon. Already got the preliminary stages for it set. And uh, we're finally going to give you guys an in-depth look at this mysterious 1958 Mexico City meeting that you keep hearing about throughout this whole thing. So stay tuned till next time, folks. Goodbye.